Well, Holman, I uh, got to say I feel a little accomplished. This last week, banks uh, announced, and I got to send press releases out. I think you called me actually the day I was fielding calls from press. We announced the diesel hybrid Humvee that we built for the Army. The one that's uh, been sitting at banks for a long time that I've walked by about 400 times and couldn't say anything about about it. it? Yes, 18 months. So that's officially official? It is officially official. We cannot announce the details like range and power. Yeah, yeah, but what is it? Is it it just a demonstration vehicle? It is a prototype. Okay. Yeah, so the, uh, the Army is interested in could they potentially convert a portion of the 100,000 uh-huh. in-service Humvees around the world to hybrid. And if they could, what would they be capable of? These are all the questions they are asking. And um, Banks was the first of, I think there were only one or two um, organizations that were asked to build a hybrid version of a Humvee. Ditch the anemic 6.5 liter diesel engine that's been in these uh, since the 80s and replace it with a V6 3 liter turbo diesel engine and uh, backed by a a hybrid system so it can run silently. It can run just on the diesel engine uh, or a combination thereof. Or power your campsite. Or power a lot more than your campsite, yes. There was a release that went out and uh, we got some good coverage. Our friend Caleb over at the drive covered it. It was on Jalopnik and a bunch of other places. So uh, a little uh, little gold star for Mr. Lightning. That was kind of cool. So now what are you on? What, what, what can you not talk about now? What I can't reveal are like the details. A lot of people want to know like how far can it go? How much power can it export? How much horsepower does the diesel engine put? Like I can't answer any of those well, things. Well, I just mean like what's your next project that you can't talk about? Uh, the next version of this one that we're bidding on. Oh, there's not like some cool like banks aftermarket like turn your Cummins into a hybrid that's coming out soon? Mm, there is something that we were asked to partner on Mm. by a company that you're very familiar with Mm -hmm. that if it happens it'll be amazing absolutely amazing and even you will go that's cool okay even the most hardened of critics will say i'm on board i think this is going to be cool hardened of critics (laughs) is that what what is it (laughs) what what, what would you call a uh the most staunch of critics um sure okay pundit yeah I'm an automotive truck pundit. Yes, you are. Okay. okay. It's, it's, we're coming up on Christmas, and I got a little some stuff for uh, Mr. Holman here. I'm going to hand you a gift I that I realize wrapped. you're doing a gift exchange. Uh, I, I just a surprise. I saw this in, uh, online, and I had to buy it for my man, Mr. Holman. Mm. So I wrapped this in uh, some uh, interesting red polka dot and put a bow on it. And, Did uh, you wrap this? I, 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 I wrap all my presents. I can tell. I do. I'm not, I'm not a bad wrapper. It's okay. Better than me. I mean, you actually, right. there's symmetry in your folds, which is good. Uh-huh. Wow, this is amazing. Nature's dick pics. It's literally a wonderfully uh, phallic natural rock formation calendar for 2024. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. I think we'll have to find a uh, place for this inside the uh, inside the pod Flip it around and look at this. 12 months of phallic uh, natural structures occurring uh, in nature. I, I love nature. Yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna enjoy this. I think we'll enjoy this together. <laughs> uh-huh. That doesn't make it sound no, any better. No, that sounds weird. Uh, we'll find a spot. We'll hang this up. Uh, but uh, appreciate the uh, Nature's Dick Picks 2024 uh, calendar. <laughs> that's that's, that's you, isn't it? Not. Uh, I mean, I I don't know if it's me, but I can appreciate it. Uh huh. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I'm inspired now. Okay. All right. So now that we're on the uh, the gift giving thing, uh-huh. these are not to you, but these are to us. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's not true. That's not true. Okay. All right. Give you, uh, the, this one, the really. I'm going to read this to you, okay. and then I'm and then I'm going to hand you the gift that's inside. Okay. Okay. There was some stuff for me, and there was there was some monster energy stuff that came to me, and I will gloss past that part because I've already taken it home, and it says, um, "This is from Ozzy Sadiq." I've had this jacket and shirt sitting in my office for two years waiting to send them out to you, and I'm finally tired of looking at them. Oh, yeah. He emailed me and said, where can I send stuff? And I said, send it to... Uh, to and, he, and he didn't. Thanks, I got sorry. it. I, yeah. I totally appreciate this, Ozzy. The monster, I, it was way too big for me. The monster was like a polo shirt. I gave it to Nolan, one of our mechanical engineers. Loves it. Thank you very much. He says, I used to work for a distributor of these brands and got these promotional items, but will never use them. So I figured I'd send them to the two people who could really appreciate them. All right. Jay, sorry about the double X shirt. Uh, I know it's going to look like a dress on you, but I know you like the brand. It's not true. Sean, I think this jacket will fit you, and I have a feeling you'll enjoy it. Also, some stickers in the box uh, from my current employer. And Sean, thanks for being a supporter and advocate of the KO2 tires. Let me show you the jacket All right. that he has gifted you. Brand new in the plastic. Yep. Oh, Dr. Pepper jacket. A Dr. Pepper jacket. By the way, this this is is a really bitchin' jacket. This is way nice. It's a very, very nice jacket. Embroidered with the Dr. Pepper logo on the left breast pocket. It's an Eddie Bauer jacket. I know. So this is like one of those cold, kind of like misty, rainy day kind of jackets? This is something that like a Dr. Pepper rep would wear out in the field, right? It's, that's just, this is cool. Gotta put it on here. All right. Take off my flannel, and we're going to uh, swap my, uh, my flannel for... Dr. Pepper jacket. This is the, one of the nicest things uh, anybody's ever given me. Oh, look at that. Oh, dude, that fits you well. Yeah. And I got, I got room in it, too. Like, it's not tight. It's got zippers everywhere. He, oh, oh yeah. you don't know this. Holman loves himself some zippers. Oh, there we go. Yeah, and it's it's long enough where it'll cover when I... You know, Bend over so we don't see crack? No, not. I wasn't thinking about that, but okay. I'm sure that's probably true. Yeah, this is great. That's a nice jacket, dude. I gotta say, this is a nice jacket. Aussie coming through. All right, one more thing. There's this more. This is a box wait, that showed. More. Yeah, this is not from Aussie. This is from uh, someone else. Okay. And I will read the note first before I reveal what's inside. Okay. This is a handwritten letter, much like Aussie's was typed. Here we go. It's a little longer. I'm going to get through this as fast as I can. Lightning at home. And first off, I'm a huge fan of the slightly above average show. Take Thank you. Compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Been a listener since the very beginning, and I've uh, even called in with a few off-the-wall questions that y'all have so graciously answered. Currently hanging out in my office is a 100% authentic note that accompanied my TSP shirt. That's a rarity. Okay. Can't wait for my kids to ask what the heck it is and why it's next to a picture of their mother. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to send you all an appreciation gift uh, this Christmas season. Even in my late 20s, I still enjoy all things... Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars. Okay. Figured you all might like these as well. Included some of my personal favorite truck castings, along with a few others. I think you'll get a kick out of these. Uh, there's enough for both of you, so play nice. Hope you both have a wonderful Christmas and continue to lower the suckage going into 2024. It's not possible. Sorry, uh, we're going to disappoint you in advance. Give me a shout if you ever want to talk diecast cars. God bless. Grant Greensvig. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Or Grants right. Green, Greens Yep. The Orange Track Farmer from Charles City, Iowa? IA? Uh-huh. Iowa? Uh-huh. No. What's IA? Iowa. Iowa. I was right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to pull out this box. Look at these beautifully packaged 
Look at all these Hot Wheels cars. Oh, got the uh, electric Hummer. Yep, a Hummer, a brand new Hummer. So what does he just? Does, what? How does he have I so many? I don't know that he why he has so these. many. One oh, one. dude, Slam C10 square body. That's right. so That's cool. cool. Look at oh Bronco. Okay. Ooh, a Lightning. So this must be for That's you. That's got to be me. It's a new Lightning, not a cool old now, one. I wanted to see how you felt about Rivian R1T. That's cool. Okay. okay. Uh, oh, look at that nice Forerunner. Mm-hmm. I know somebody who bought this exact Forerunner last week. Monster truck. That's probably me. Boy, there's a combination of Matchbox. Oh, and check it here. out, Lowrider. Oh, that's bitching. What that's is that? Cool. It's a piss drive Chevy. Okay, that's yeah, like a forty-seven. Look at this uh, Ram fifteen hundred Coast Patrol, nineteen eighty El Camino slammed. Yeah, that is so cool. Dude, this is the gift that keeps giving. Dude, BFG. Oh, dude, this was uh, Baja Blazers collection, the eighty-seven uh, Dodge D one hundred. I think that's like a Walker Evans or something like that. I think it might even been Rod Hall, by the way, back then. Oh, this one's for me. Look at this. Read that. Mini Cooper S Challenge. Huh? <laughs> Grant, you have made these two boys' uh, Christmas very bright. All right, Thank I have you an so idea. much. You don't know this. All right, but. Abby has this cool Hot Wheels playset uh-huh. that has like the loop and the it orange launches track. cars. Yeah, we should find the ones that aren't like collectible, mm-hmm. and then pull them out and then race each other. I'm all about it. All right, you guys are going to be uh, pretty excited because uh, one of the guests that you keep asking for is uh, Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. He'll be uh, gracing uh, our presence here on the show to talk about uh, a trip we recently took to help reopen a historic route. So pretty excited to talk about that. And then also, I just got back uh, yesterday from a SEMA Garage measuring session, mm-hmm. and uh, I caught up with our friend Mike Spagnola, the uh, El Presidente of SEMA. We talked about the uh, measuring sessions, and I finally got to drive a truck I haven't been in yet. So all that and more coming up on this episode of the Truck Show Podcast, but first we have to thank Nissan, our presenting sponsor. Thank you, Nissan, for supporting the Truck Show Podcast. If you are looking for a new truck, head on down to your local Nissan dealer, where you can check out the Midsize Frontier or the Half-Ton Titan or Titan XD. The Titans have the industry's best five-year, 100,000-mile warranty. And whether you choose a Titan or a Frontier, you'll get a quiet, durable, reliable truck that has all the creature comforts and all the ruggedness that you need in your next pickup. Head over to NissanUSA.com, where you can build and price your Nissan truck today. And earlier today, Holman, on the Ford Tremor Forum, it's a forum and a Facebook group, ran by the same guy, Dan, and he's amazing. He informed me that there, he's like, hey, Jay, uh, he sent me a, a, a message over Facebook. He's like, hey, check this out. There was a big debate going on. Uh, Edge CTS screen, like a five-inch diagonal uh-huh. flat screen versus the bank side dash. Okay. And a lot of the banks guys were saying, this is the way to go. And some of the older edge guys that have had it since the, you know, the, the mid-2000s and like their old Duramax LMLs and stuff like that, like, oh, no, it's better. And then the guys who had the iDashes were questioning, hey, how often does your edge CTS firmware freeze up? And the screen just freezes. They're like, well, occasionally, but it's not a big deal. They're like, our iDashes never freeze because they're solid state. There's no like software running in the background. It's all firmware baked into the chips. Right? And they go like, okay, well, does, how, how fast does the CTS boot up? I'm like, well, it, it takes like 
10, 12 seconds. It goes, nope, two seconds for the eye dash. And it was funny. They were having this debate online, which is better. And they're like, okay, well, does it calculate horsepower in real time? Is it like a mobile? So basically, it's like, a, it's like a dyno on wheels. built up a community that has your back because they love the product so much. <laughs> they do. Exactly. Awesome. So listen, if you're looking for data that your dashboard doesn't display, there is no more powerful compact gauge than the Banks iDash, the Data Monster or the Banks iDash Super Gauge. Go to bankspower.com, type in, oh, actually, no, you don't even have to type in your, your make and model because the iDash fits everything. You'll find yours at bankspower.com. The Truck Show. We're going to show you what we know. We're going to answer what the truck, because truck rides with truck show we have the lifted we have the lowered and everything in between we'll talk about trucks that run on diesel and the ones that run on gasoline the truck show the truck show the truck show oh, oh. it's the truck show with your hosts lightning and holman i am very excited about this are you though? I'm excited to play this again. Uh-huh. Benny Creech, Desert. I'm not gonna play no, it. You can't do the whole no, thing I until did. he's on. No, I didn't. I stopped it. Just, you just, just teased it. Just, now teaser. people know who the guest was. Lightning. Oh, do they? That's well, nah, all right. Hold on. We said it in the description. I, I know, of the but show, right? I just want to throw you off. Okay, I'm gonna dial Mr. I'm not even gonna say his name. I'm gonna save it all. I wonder if he's out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Maybe he doesn't even have his cell signal. Is right he now. exploring? Probably. All right, let's find out. Hello, is this Mr. Billy Creech, Desert Explorer? <laughs> hey, Lightning, how are you, man? I'm outstanding. I get to play this finally. Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. Hey, ho, teach us what you know. Go ahead, Billy. We're waiting. Billy? Yes. <laughs> hey, come on, you've missed that. You're the only guest that has their own jingle. No one. Everybody no, shares except you. No one has one except for you. If, okay. Well, then that makes me feel better because otherwise it just like shoots whatever credibility I have right through the heart. <laughs> no, your credibility no, is just what are you fine. Talking about? In fact, it gives you more credibility. Let, let me just point out since you came on the first time and the subsequent 72 times you've been on uh, in the past few years, uh, you have uh, you've attained rank of uh, president of a nonprofit. You've gotten notoriety in the Explorers Club. You have uh, reopened old trails. I mean, what, what what more do you want? We have elevated you in every facet of uh, of your exploring life because of this. I've heard that the, he, he's got a Presidential Medal of Outdoorsmanship. <laughs> I don't think that's a medal. No. <laughs> it's a merit badge. He did have a Rolex for a few days. What do you mean? Oh, yeah, I want to hear about that. That yeah. was a very special Rolex, from what I understand. Yeah, that was that was hard to send back. Let me tell you. All right, so I I don't know where you want to start. I wanted to have you on because, as most of the listeners know, we've Wait, talked who, about who it. Who is he? Benny Creech, Desert Explorer. By the way, he likes it when I do that live and in person for him. He won't admit it. He thinks it's funny. Do you get on the it, mic? I like the Cornelius voice. He they, that's true. He does like my Cornelius. <laughs> And his name's Cornelius. <laughs> Should we make you do the whole interview that no. way? I, I mean, I, we could. It no. would be, it would be an old very yeah. fast. So I don't know uh, where. I mean, 
Cornelius. <laughs> no, I, I don't know where to start. Uh, our listeners know that we went on this this epic trip to uh, reopen a long lost historical trail. I don't think that they know that you went with Billy Creech. And we've talked about it. I mean, a little bit. So we'll we'll, we'll cover that. But okay. so here's the thing. There's so much stuff that came in and then out of that trip that that I really want Billy to cover. So we should start with the why, what it is, the history. Before we do that, Holman, it's uh-huh. important to say why Billy Creech was included in that trip. Like what significance? No, it, does, it's his trip. No, no, I, I, I like. So I want, but people don't know that. That's what we're getting to. Well, but you that's, were just gonna. You were gonna the, give. No, I want to give his credentials. No, that's the what and the why. Oh, and then there's the Explorers Club, the famous Explorers Club as part of this trip. There's a partnership with public land agencies to open up a trail, which doesn't seem to happen anymore. There's just so much epic, and then there might have been uh, uh, some major washouts where the trail was impassable, but not for the torque and horsepower of the mighty 392. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. You're going to tell me next that you used the the uh, anti-gravity jump pack to save someone, aren't yeah, you? We already talked about that, and yes, we did. <laughs> Billy, what's the genesis? How did this all come about? Oh, years ago, 2019, um, right after I had remapped the EMHT, I was sitting with Dennis Casebeer, and... He and I were talking. So real quick, EMHT, talking, let, let's make sure they know uh, EMHT is the uh, East Mojave Heritage Trail, which is now after Billy remapped it and made it compliant with all the wilderness areas and private property. Now that is now 733 miles long in four segments. It's one of the, if not the premier overlanding trail in the Western United States. I would put it up against the Mojave Road, which is about 138 miles long, or any of like the, the BDR up in the Pacific Northwest or the Pony Express Trail or, or any of those awesome trails, EMHT is freaking phenomenal. So Billy mapped that, and then Dennis Casebeer, who is the basically the father of the Mojave Road and the EMHT, that's where Billy and Dennis come together is when Billy asked for permission to make EMHT compliant. This is a total aside. Did you see the uh, news deal that I shared on the EMHT page? Uh, yeah. We're, a couple hours in fact, I think we talked about it on the show a few weeks ago. Lightning brought it up where Google was sending people randomly off into the middle of the Mojave Desert from the 15, <laughs> and they were getting stuck. Yeah. I wonder if I'm signed in on the mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so uh, how did this whole thing start? Talking to Dennis in 2019 after I'd done the, remapped his route, the East Mojave Heritage Trail, he started telling me about this other route the old traction road. And he asked if I would remap it. So I said, yes, not knowing anything about it. And so we talked, I got some details. And essentially it's a route. Originally it was 110 miles long in the late 1800s. Francis Borak Smith, who was the mining magnate day in the desert area. He acquired a mine called the Lila Sea. That's just Southeast of Death Valley. And he get the ore to uh, market uh, to the railroad sightings. And the 20 mule teams were very costly, very slow. They used a ton of horses. And so he was like, hey, we're going to use this new technology to revolutionize transportation. We're going to use this new thing called gasoline. But to do this, I have to build a road. So he commissions a guy. And we one of the other things of the expedition is we've now corrected the historical record on this. 
he commissions a road to be built, cut into the middle of the desert through some really rugged, remote, very hostile terrain to a traction engine that would be gasoline powered and it would generate electricity to power rear wheels on ore carts, which could move four times the ore at three times the speed for of the resources. By the so, way, the original hybrid was back in the early freaking 1900s, people. You're all complaining about the 4xE Jeeps and the Tacoma being all hybrid. This dude was trying it with ore carts and and in the desert off-roading a century ago. Damn it. How do you feel about it? I just think it's funny. Like today, that technology failed and didn't work. Um, <laughs> and uh, he ended up using a steam, went old school because the the new technology didn't make it, didn't even make it to the start of the route. So he goes, not giving up because he invested three years and in today's dollars, $3.6 million. So he gets himself a steam traction engine that does the same thing, but uses steam power, ships it out there, and they run this experiment. Well, it made it 14 miles across the Ivan Lake bed before it blew its boiler flu, and that was it. He said, screw it, I'm going to go build a railroad. After and spending $3.6 million in today's money, gave up. Yeah. He, he, this is what's hilarious okay, about what, this. What year's again? This what is, year? This was 1903, right? Yep. And so being part of uh, the Mojave Desert Heritage and Cultural Association, so Billy is uh, the president, I'm on the board of directors, we had one of our uh, guys who's on the board who is sort of an archivist find newspaper clippings from that era. And if you follow the newspaper clippings, it's freaking hilarious. It says, man to obsolete borough, man building road, obsolete train, man go, you know. And there's all this buildup and hype, and then it's like, traction engine fails, man spends money. And it's like, oh, and it's so funny. Yeah, then man builds train. And he built, uh, he wanted to build, was it railroad tracks and then connect it to Vegas? And the Vegas Railroad said, no, you're not going to do that. So then he ended up making his own well, rail line called the, uh, was that the uh, Tidewater and Tonopah? Tonopah Tidewater, yeah. yeah he Tonopah must Tidewater. have had what, what, a fortune, a f- absolute fortune. The Borax or, King. Uh, well, what's even more brazen about the guy is he actually laid in 12 miles of railroad track before he talked to the guys in Las Vegas that owned the tracks he was trying to lay into. And then when they told him no, he had to abandon that 12 miles also. He was really trying to push the envelope to get his stuff to the railroad sidings in the most efficient way, right? It's kind of the the original, I would say, really out-of-the-box thinking in that kind of environment where he was trying to use whatever new technology he could and was willing to invest in it. So Dennis asked me to do this. It was kind of my last unticked box for him. He passed away in 2021, and he had said that he did that route Back in the early 2000s, him and another guy who's now passed away, John Fickworth, they did it in a way they shouldn't have done it because they followed the original route because he had the map of it and because it used to be on. So I'm going to do a quick aside here. This was such a big deal. So much in the news, as Sean referenced, with it being in the newspapers all the time because it was revolutionizing the industry that the USGS put it on their maps as a road based on his planned route. So they put it on there because they're like, this guy's going to succeed. He's going to do this. And then after it failed, they let it sit for a little bit. And then after 1912, they removed it from the maps. So you have to go back to them to, I had to go back to 1912 to find the route 
um, on a USGS map. And thankfully those guys digitized all their stuff. Dennis and John had done this route and they did it non-compliantly. And Dennis had said, this was the most rugged thing he had ever done, which is saying something because he's the guy who cut in the Mojave road and the EMHT from scratch. So that kind of told me, you know, what I would be in for if I tried to do this. When you, Billy, EMHT, Billy, let me pause you for one second. What, I mean, let's, what do you mean by non-compliantly? Meaning they just, they just went over scrub brush. Like, I don't, what do you mean by that? It went into restricted land that they shouldn't have gone into. Um, like BLM or military land? To do, so wilderness territory, wilderness study areas, things like that, fragile habitat. What they were trying to do, the archive, the MBHCA archive, has about 20 original historic photos from when this route was being created. They were trying to do then and now pictures 100 years later, exactly 100 years later, so that they could document the terrain change. Right. How has the terrain changed over the last hundred years? Did it recover? Did it not? So even though they shouldn't have been there, they were trying to do it for the right reasons. You know, we got our hands on those photographs and I'm not going into a wilderness area because the entire point of this is to steer the route around those areas and make it a compliant route. So he had said this thing is the most rugged thing he'd ever done. And I started about two and a half years ago, started really looking at it. Started really kind of laying it out, looking at the wilderness areas, looking at the existing routes, looking at what potentially could be reroutes for it, how much of the original route could we run. And then, you know, I became the president of the MDHCA. And so you get busy, you start doing other things. And then um, BLM and I were talking because we have the memorandum of understanding where we help them with a lot of the trail assessments and the management of the trails in the area. And we started talking about doing another route like we did together with the EMHT. We then said, hey, let's do this. Well, that kind of started a, well, the timing's kind of right. Let's do this now. And so in the spring, I started pushing it pretty hard, started looking at what we could be in for. We don't know what's out there. So so Sean's been out there, so he knows this. Um, but for your listeners and for you, Lightning, this area is so remote and is so rugged that BLM is responsible for it, but there's a lot of area out there that they have not been into. So their field scientists have not been out there. When you say, so, Billy, Billy, when you say rugged, do you mean like on the face of the moon? Like, <laughs> no, yeah. what I'm saying is like when you say the words, oh, it's rugged, like everyone goes, I have a Jeep, I can go anywhere. Like that's just yeah. like, I can go anywhere, I have a Jeep. What's you, too rugged for a Jeep? You could do it in a stock Jeep, but you're going to scrape. You're probably going to have a pretty bouncy ride. And there may be a little bit of body damage because the, because it's so narrow that you're going to hit the doors and knock the mirrors off. Like, what, well, because you're because it. you're going through massive washout areas and okay. things like that where there's undercuts, yeah. and so maybe on the trail, the trail is as wide as your jeep, except on the right hand side is lower than the driver's side. The passenger side is lower because there's a drainage ditch that has the water has eroded that side of the road, and then it also undercut the bank. So now the only thing holding the top of that bank together, which is at your mirror level, is some scrub brush and its roots, but your Jeep is pitched toward that side. So you have to be really careful to climb high on it so you don't slide in and get your fenders or your windows or your doors on something like that. I mean, it's we had gone through, and, and we'll get there in a minute, but we had gone through, obviously, this spring and summer had some of the worst storms in the Mojave Desert in decades, 
and there's an incredible amount of damage out there. And on the roads that we were on, some of them hadn't been traveled in in literally decades. There was some crazy erosion. Uh, Billy will, will remember we crossed this wash up near Pahrump. And you're looking across the wash, and the wash is probably, let's call it 250 feet wide, maybe 300 feet wide with like, let's say, 15-foot banks on either side. Holy mackerel. On top of the banks. So that was like a river well, at hold one on. point. On top of the banks, all the brush was laying on its side. That means the water was above the top of the riverbanks because it flattened out all of the bushes and things like that. That's wow. how much water was going through there. And you can only imagine the damage because the water flow was perpendicular to the direction of travel on the trail. And so you're constantly, not only are we trying to find the route that's been washed away or find any kind of semblance of a road in there, or sometimes there were times you had to stand on the front bumper and look way down ahead because you could barely make, there's so much brush in the way, you could barely make out the faint one, the the brush in the middle was just slightly smaller than the ones around it or slightly less dense. Well, and there's a lot of area where there was no brush at all. And so you're, we're following the digital line and making our own tracks where the route was supposed to be. And we got lucky because so, a few times we backtracked or or we ended up crossing whatever the obstacle, maybe it was a mile across some moonscape, and then boom, we found the trail on the other side of the bank. What did the trail look like um, 100 years ago? So they cut in a road. I mean, they cut in eight feet wide and and leveled it where they could because this, this engine needed to be relatively level travel. They graded this thing down. It took them three years of manual labor to do it. There was, and, a, um, I was just, 10 miles. I was going to say, there's a section of road where they actually crushed the gravel from the rocks and made like a, a desert cobble mm. where it's little tiny, like maybe quarter to half dollar size crushed rock all in the middle. And then there was a berm on either side where they had graded it and it pushed it up. But they had done that over a hundred years ago. And that portion of the road, no tire tracks, brush growing up through the middle of it. But because you could see the grading on either side that the bulldozer had left when the, you know when it went through, you could tell that you were still in between the guardrails, if you will, on that road. And sometimes all you could do, you couldn't even see ahead. You were looking at, I'm following this this six inch ridge of rocks on my side, or this I'm on top of this right. de- desert cobble, and like, oops, now I'm not. Is it because the road changed? Is it because the, ge- the geology changed, which happened quite a bit on that road? It was it was pretty incredible. So two questions. How fast were you traveling? Like a half a mile an hour, like walking speed? So it depended on where we were. For the whole trip, we averaged three miles an hour Hmm. over three days. You know, I think it was the first full day, Sean, right? We did 24 miles in two hours. And then it took us 10 hours to go the next 10 miles. Yeah, it was, Hmm. that was, that was rough. (laughs) When you were on, for example, the crushed rock portion that was, had the most semblance of a road. Did you ever get out and just have that moment of awe? Like, did you, did, yeah, could, could you time, soak it in though? Could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So but, yeah, I get so, out of pick, but like uh, to me, well, it seems like when you would stand on the hill, go like, no one has been on this trail in. Yes. We, we did. And we, and we had that discussion. There were times we stopped and kind of all soaked it in, but the reality is we we're on a mission. We had a certain amount of days to make this done. During that time, government shutdown was narrowly averted, and it would have happened in the middle of our trip. If it had happened in the middle of our trip, 
our people from the BLM would have had to go back to the headquarters because they couldn't have been out there. So we were on this compressed time schedule. So there was a mission to accomplish in X amount of time to map this trail. And there were times where we would get up to a six-foot drop, like straight down. I'm like, well, nobody's doing that. So out came the shovels and, and pickaxes, and you know we we broke down the banks and dropped down and all that. And then other times, I you know for the most part, uh, Billy was tail gunner, um, I was leading, and there's times where I would lose the trail, and I'd just tell everybody on the radio, stop, hold on. I would go searching for the trail. I'd go on foot, or I'd get to someplace high so I could see it and go, oh, I found it. It's this way. Ninety-eight percent of the time, believe it or not, it was on the digital line. I couldn't. I, I was blown away. Um, there's lots of times we had to deviate from that because we'd have to go around a washout or we'd have to go around something really dangerous, like a, a mine shaft that was nearby or or some sort were there, of. Were there a lot of those? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We're, Straight down. Yeah. Well, With nothing covering it up. Yeah. No, no, no. Just debris. Like no. it collapsed and there was things. Yeah. Yeah, that could be scary. So what is funny, what Billy and I did was he told me, hey, this 1912 map is the last one that has this road on it. And I went, oh, I wonder if I can find it. So I found it. USC actually digitizes U.S. Geological Survey maps in high resolution. I found the three or four maps I needed. I went to Onyx and I plotted out the course and I told Billy, I said, okay, here's the course that I found of the original route. Now here's what I think we can do. And Billy goes, oh, I didn't send you mine? He sent me his. He did the exact same thing, and our <laughs> routes were about 95% identical. No kidding. So we were able to merge those. There's only a couple places where mine differed than his. Did you overlay them? Is that how you know? Like, like yeah, two so, pieces of vellum? Yeah. No, no, you just add it to Onyx with a different color on it. So oh, we had the yeah. original trace in one right. color, my trace in another, and Billy's trace in another. And we could see where we differed. So then he and I got on the phone and said, okay, I think we can go through here and it's public land. I think this is not private property. I think this trail is compliant. And we verified it with the BLM maps and then Onyx uses BLM base maps. So we were able to say, yeah. And then we built out a, a thing. I just thought it was so amazing how accurate Onyx was. And yes, they've sponsored the show and stuff before, but the product is fantastic. We, we mapped this entire trip using Onyx and Billy and I collaborated on building out the actual driving route through Onyx and then shared it with each other. That technology is is really amazing, and then we all have the same map on everybody's vehicle on the trip, which was which is. Did stellar. you bring it up on CarPlay so you've got it all the full screen? I, I just use my iPad Mini is on a mount. That uh, way, I have the full use of yeah. of the app. Did uh, did Billy Creech bring it up on his AM radio that he has in his uh, Avalanche? Uh, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, when, so when you're looking down at Onyx Maps, you're because you had to go through these washes that were. 10, 15 feet deep with like basically cliffs. Could you see any of that with Onyx looking? Or is it because you're looking straight down at Earth from a satellite that you couldn't see those hills and valleys and, and such? We knew it was bad or we knew what the flow patterns were. Onyx allows you to look at a, a newer, less detailed resolution satellite or an older, more detailed resolution. We also looked on uh, Google Earth. We also looked on Apple Maps and looked at the same area. So we had a pretty good idea like what the area would be like, but until you're there in it, immersed in it, you have no idea how deep it is or you just know this is a wash and it's going to be difficult to find the trail through here. And were there washes yeah. back then when he, when the original, when he was trying to, when he made this road, like was he going through washes or is that new in the last yeah, hundred years? The desert, right? I mean, it's the weather out there is, is it's hot and it's, you get the heavy duty monsoon, you know, monsoonal flows and storms. So that's always been the same, but 
they just they did it. And and honestly, you know, when when we ran this route, it kept going through my head. What were they thinking? This had no chance of success. There's no <laughs> way. Yeah. Just because it, it was, was going to be washed cover. away, Billy? But like what it was. Well, so like imagine a traction engine. So anybody who's ever been to Death Valley and you've been to Furnace Creek, outside the visitor center is one of these old steam traction engines, which looks like kind of like a, a small locomotive steam uh, tank that instead of having wheels for rails, has big, massive steel wheels with spikes on them. Well, what they're not good at is going uphill. And this whole route is basically uphill. And you're thinking, we had three stock BLM Jeeps, or four. We had my 392 that had all the AV stuff on it, Billy's highly modified Avalanche, and Chris Collar, our photojournalist friend, who has a uh, an older first-gen Tacoma with, I think, 31s on it, and Bill Steins. And all the vehicles were able to make it, but you're thinking, like, these are all really good off-road vehicles you you know i maybe chris has 33s but there's they were the small on the small yeah smaller side so anything smaller than a 33 you are gonna have a lot of trouble and anything that doesn't have a monotube shock on it is going to be overheat well all of it kidney busting rides gonna degrade i mean there were times where it was miles upon miles and we were going so slow it was hours of just being punished because the terrain was so bad, I couldn't even imagine being so. Even at three miles an hour, it's still just so rutted and rocky. Yeah, you're just dropping mm-hmm. tires, and you know the body swaying back and forth. And I couldn't imagine if I was in something like, let's say, I had to trade my 392 Jeep that's modified for this exact thing. Which, by the way, I'd gotten my shocks all dialed in before then, revalved, and it was f- phenomenal, phenomenal. Let's say somebody said, "Hey, here's a new Chevy Heavy Duty. Go do that same road." I would have been like, oh, dude, I'm gonna, my <laughs> kidneys are going to be gone by the time this, and I'll be two inches shorter. And your truck is not going to look the same. And your truck is not going to look the same. Thank God you had expelled. That, whatever that stuff is called that you have on your Jeep is amazing because it looks brand new, and it had stripes everywhere on it, and it cleaned right up. Oh, we were dragging so. it through trails where the distance between the edges of the bushes were maybe two or three feet. And the road's right in the middle, and you're going, well, it is what it is. Out three inches narrower than my truck because I lost one body panel. <laughs> That's true. He he did lose uh, some some of the plastic avalanche uh, avalanche uh, cladding. Decided to uh, take a leave of absence without letting it's, Billy know. You know what? I have spare clips. It went right back on. <laughs> what happened? It just got grabbed by a branch and ripped off. It got grabbed by a. Embankment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about a section, guys, where you thought, well, this is just straight impassable. And then you had to go around and take half a day to get around well, that, it. That's, that's easy. Well, though. We're, we're both going to say the same thing. But yeah. before we do that, I want to talk about the Beyond team a little bit, right? So we put this team together. So Lightning, not knowing what we would run into, right? So I put on the team, right? I handpicked the skill sets that I wanted. So we had a field archaeologist, a field geologist, a field biologist and botanist, and medical specialist. We had right. Oh, we had all these things because um, not only was it the prudent thing to do because we don't know what we're going to find, and thankfully we had everybody because every single skill set on this team came into play. But part of the Explorers Club flag application is I had to do things like plan helicopter evacuations, plan for envenomation, 
right? Where are the nearest invenomation anti-venom centers? So wait, you get a, you get a snake bite? Struck. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Mojave Greens, yes. the most poisonous yes. uh, venomous snake in North America, and that place Scorpions. is ripe with them. Yep. Scorpions, tarantulas. Yes. Billy got a great picture of a tarantula crawling on him. No way. Yeah. Uh, no way. So, yeah. Oh, you haven't seen that one? No, I haven't I seen it. Um, I'll have to show him. That picture, the Explorers Club used it as their global face of exploration for Halloween. It was their happy Halloween picture to everybody. Was it really? Let me see that. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll, while, I'll, while you're looking I'll for that, okay, I think I don't understand how you assembled this crew and what is this global exploration club? Well, the Explorers Club. So, yeah, before okay. before we the go Explorer in, club? yeah, before we get into kind of the the trip and the impasse, which is actually a great part of the story. Explain, Billy, the Explorers Club and your involvement with it and sort of the whole thing from the flag to the watch and what it means to the Explorer community because that's another great part of the story where when when you figure out who was paying attention to this and the eyes and the weight of the Explorers Club, it becomes even even bigger than what this podcast is is talking to you about. It's crazy. So I'm a member of the Explorers Club. That is an institution that was founded in 1904. It is for scientific exploration. So you cannot just join this, this club. You have to be uh, sponsored by two active members. They have to put their credentials on the line to vouch for your credentials. You have to be voted in, uh, reviewed. And then once you pass that, then the entire membership gets a 30-day period to offer comment on you whether or not you should be in it. So it's a, it's a big deal. And your credentials outside of exploration do not count, right? So I can't go, oh, hey, I, I'm the president of this. They don't care. When Teddy Roosevelt applied for it, he put on his application, president of the United States. And they went, so what else you got? <laughs> not good enough. Um, but when you went up and you played this. Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. <laughs> you're in, buddy. He said, I've been on a podcast. <laughs> He's got, in you got, fairness, you... I was a member before you guys did that. Oh. <laughs> They're like, we heard but, you have your own intro. But, you're in. You you weren't right. as elevated as you are now. Clearly, you've made uh, great strides since being mm-hmm. on the podcast. So anyway, so the Explorers Club, right? It's it's it promotes scientific exploration, conservation, preservation around the planet, and it's it's got what's called the famous first, right? So the members were the first to the moon. Neil Armstrong carried one of the Explorers Club flags inside of his uh, spacesuit when they went to the moon. The first to the top of Everest, the first to uh, the Marianas Trench, the first to Challenger Deep, first to North Pole, uh, the North Pole, first to the South Pole. Club of heavy hitters, right? It's some really amazing history uh, involved with this organization. And they don't do adventure. They don't do travel for travel's sake. Everything has to be for the good of the planet and the expansion of human knowledge. Everything. And, And so... They have a deal, what's called the Flag Award, which is when you are going to do an expedition, if it rises to a certain standard, and it's a very rigorous standard to meet, you can apply for a flag. And the Explorers Club is extremely protective of their flag. You can't buy it. You can't even buy a decal that's just the flag. It'll have something else on it. I applied because I was like, ooh, this expedition has a lot tied to it. The MDHCA was sponsoring it. BLM was supporting it. I had this team of scientists because we're not sure what we're going to run into, but we know given the length of it, given the area, we could run into some some really cool stuff from endangered species because that was a big part of it is protecting them and their habitat to cultural, sensitive cultural sites, all of this kind of stuff, um, geology that people haven't seen. So... 
That's why I put this team together. I applied for a flag, laid out all of our objectives, laid out the history of the route, laid out what we were trying to accomplish. And we were actually awarded a flag to carry on the trip. It's flag number 238. And these flags, they go out in the field with expedition teams. You carry them, you photograph them, you write up your reports, you send them back, and then they go out with another expedition and your expedition becomes part of that flag's history. And when it gets to a certain point of um, either being too tattered or hits something that makes it a theft target because it becomes so iconic, right? Like the moon flag that people would try to steal it. So it goes out in the field over and over again. So you become part of the history of this flag. So the entire expedition, the entire team is named in the history of this flag now. So we had that. And then there was a program um, that I wasn't aware of. Rolex is, is a symbol of exploration for generations with their iconic, you know, the Explorer watch, the Explorer 2. And they have three Rolex watches on display in a glass case at the Explorers Club headquarters in New York City. A Submariner, a Rolex, uh, sorry, an Explorer and an Explorer 2. And I didn't really know about this program until I got contacted out of the blue saying, hey, your flag application came to our attention. And we in the Explorers Club and Rolex want you to wear one of these Rolexes on your expedition. So, Billy, uh, tell Lightning what the serial number was on our particular uh, Yeah, so this stamped on the back of this watch. So we got the Explorer, because that's the one that's associated with land expeditions. We got the Explorer, and it is stamped on the back, uh, TEC for the Explorers Club, Rolex Explorer watch number one. No. What would that be worth? you could look up the um, Providence or the provenance, if you will, of that watch and see every expedition that had it, that wore it before. And now our trip through the Mojave Desert is going to be part of watch number one's history forever. How rad is that? Right. That is a $30 million watch, I bet you. I mean, who knows? Who knows? We we had it. and uh, it, So that watch has not been to the moon or has it? Uh, no, I don't think it's been the one. You know, I mean, the weird thing is wearing a watch like that while you're swinging a pick, um, <laughs> repeatedly. Did it the fit cool or did is, you have to pull a, cu- a couple of links out? No, uh, it was uh, too well, tight. Actually, no, <laughs> I, I actually got it and it didn't fit. I couldn't get it over my hand. He came to me and, and he goes, I got the watch you want to wear it. I'm like, yeah, I guess, sorry, you can't. And I'm like, come on, I'm on the expedition. He goes, no, literally your hands are too big. It won't fit over your hands. I'm like. No way. So what do they do? They send you an extra link? They did not because of timing. I literally got the watch two days before I was leaving. No. So, so I went to a jewelry store and had them, right? It has a micro adjustment. So I had done the micro adjustment. It wasn't enough. They were able to, you know, and it, I'm Rolex is like, well, take a screwdriver and do this. I'm like, I am not doing that. So um, I took it to a jeweler. They expanded it out to where I could just get it over my wrist and like clamp it really tight. But I was like, there's no way I'm not wearing this. So I was able to do that. And then the cool thing was I didn't ask if this was okay because I'm the person on the trip that's in the Explorers Club, but I made sure that every person on the team wore the watch. You know, but it is it is a weird feeling. And I'll tell you the cool thing to um, Rolex and the Explorers Club credit, right? This thing sits on display when it's not in the field. It doesn't have a mark on it. I was terrified. I'm like, 
they're like, no, 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 you can't hurt it. This is what it's built for. This is the Rolex. It's a functional tool. You can't hurt it. Do whatever you want to do. Bang it around. And I was like, hold my beer. (laughs) Well, yeah. I'm like, do you know who you're talking to right now? Do you have have photos of it? I I haven't seen it. Is it a black face? I will show you. It's an oyster. And to their credit, right, I banged this thing around. I did not baby it at all. I I treated it like it was a a $20 old, you know, Chinese knockoff. It did not get a scratch on it. It had dust. It had other stuff. And I just wipe it off with my thumb and it looked brand new. I was shocked. I just think of all, we all wore it. Me, I wasn't able to clasp it, but I wore it. It was one of those things that you knew the gravity, how special it was that you were awarded an Explorers Club flag and the Explorers Club Rolex because the committees that go through all the applications felt that your expedition was worthy of that. And for this being a passion project, obviously, Billy and I both love the Mojave Desert. We have a lot of fond uh, thoughts and memories of, of Dennis and who Dennis was and what he created. And the fact that I was honored to be able to assist Billy in crossing off the last thing on the list that Dennis asked him to do before he passed away and then to be kind of thrust into this spotlight with the Explorers Club and the Rolex Committee was just icing on the cake. I mean, that's that's a once-in-a-lifetime type of a thing where your name will forever be associated with these items that, that carry weight in, in the expedition and adventure communities. It just to me, it's it, it was an honor. I mean, I, I still can't believe that we did that. So this thing is 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 getting a lot of of attention, and so for it's the U.S. and it's the Southwest U.S. and people tend to think, oh, that's not that bad. But when you tell people the Mojave Desert is roughly the same size as the entire country of Jordan, and it's one of the top eight most hostile environments on the planet, you know, I mean, the Mojave Desert is eighty one thousand square kilometers. It's the only place in the United States, actually North America, where you can stand at the lowest point and physically see the highest point in the contiguous 48 because it's only 80 miles away. So bad water and Death Valley to Mount Whitney. You know, so it's got all these things. And, and, you know, our expedition, we covered, you know, the new route is 125 miles. It originally was 110. And we found, you know, three previously undocumented Native American sites. You know, a spirit portal, a mountain cave complex. Wait, what was the first one? A, wait, wait, what, what portal? It's called a spirit portal. So, what is it? so these mountains that we that this trail runs along, the peak of the mountain, the Native Americans, the name for it translates to dwelling place of evil spirits. And so we came across, you know, the archaeologist. He identified it because that's what he's. That's why he's on the trip is to look for stuff like this. And then this. we look for takwis. And then you got takwi, <laughs> right? So. Um, Lightning shaking his head at me because there's no. It's basically everywhere humans are. There's some form of Bigfoot, Yeti, Bigfoot, Sasquatch. In the Mojave Desert, right. the natives called it Yucca Man or Takwis, which was well, this giant. Yeah, which was this giant ape-looking creature that looked with rushy, like yeah. pointy Yucca-like, you know, um, a fur, I guess, on it. And there's all these stories of like military bases where these things have been seen on you know by the guards out there in the Mojave Desert and the natives have stories they've passed along so uh we're thinking well the evil spirit cave I hope I don't run into a Takwis out here because then I'd be very very upset I think we just found a great Christmas present for lightning oh yeah he he might like that what now we'll, uh, yeah I'll, we'll, we'll we should make that happen 
What? You make what happen? It's a Christmas present. A costume? Stop, yeah, stop asking questions. No, 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 no. No, it's cool. Totally cool. All right, so the spirit cave, um, the sleeping circles. What were some of the other things that we came across? So the portal is a circle of rocks with a with a based around a center rock, and then the cave complex, which is a a bunch of caves carved in the southern face of a mountain, the face that's the warmest, and then a what looks like a sleeping circle complex out in the flat desert, the moonscape area. So those we also you know our geologist right, she's able to find. And determined that this route, it's probably one of the only routes in the world of this distance, 125 miles, that you're going to encounter both the oldest and youngest rocks on this planet in such a short period of time. Because um, there's a slip system right there for the San Andreas Fault that has slipped about 30 kilometers over the last 13 million years. And so it exposes these rocks and it's easier for them to come up. So we've got the oldest to the newest. All in one spot. So, Billy, let's go back to the point on the trail where we had decided that we may not be able to complete the mission. And and this is for everybody who does this kind of stuff. Anybody who researches a trip, whatever the route is, you cannot just rely on digital mapping and paper mapping. You have to physically see it. When you get there, you have to be prepared because... There was, we had to cross a a road at one point, a paved road. Well, we couldn't because there was a 12 foot wide, you know, 10 foot deep culvert that had been dug on the side of the road by either Department of Transportation or BLM or somebody. We came to the conclusion that that was the side from where the flooding would have come from. So during the severe rains, they did it to protect the highway. Fair, they did that to save the road, but they cut off the trail access in the process. There's all these, you know, aggregate piles and things like that. So we couldn't see where the trail actually went to figure out how to connect to it and see if we could figure out another way around. So we were a little stymied and we're stopped on the side of the road talking about it. It's late afternoon. It was like four o'clock, I think. And a local pulls up in his truck to see if we're okay. And we say, yeah. And he gets out and he stops. He's an older guy. And we start telling him, you know, where what we're trying to do and does he know the interest well then the local knowledge kicks in you cannot make it it's right there you can't make it you're not gonna make it don't even try it it's 10 foot drop-offs it's cliffs and the whole time this guy's telling me this his pants are unzipped and he doesn't have underwear on (laughs) typical desert dweller (laughs) so I'm trying to keep so you. You're seeing his junk no matter what, and you're just trying to both ends coming oh, yeah. and going. Oh, jeez! It, it was it was smiling at me. Um, <laughs> what was he driving? I need to know. Uh, Dodge Durango or Dakota, the older last generation of the Dodge Dakota. Now he's explaining this to you, and the life is being sucked out of you. Everything yes. you had oh, worked toward, no it just complete. Your world is crashing around you right now. Yes and no. It's like, have you met me? Vinegar <laughs> <laughs> um, Desert Explorer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. When, whenever somebody tells me I can't do something, that's usually about the time I go do it. So he's really adamant about this. And I'm trying to stay serious with him as I'm watching Chris Collard try to take a picture of the two of us talking without yes. getting hit. Yeah, tell me there's photos. <laughs> there is a photo. There's a photo. All right. <laughs> He is just adamant that we are not going to make it. 
he's like, you're going to need jacked and you're going to need shovels and you're going to need chains. And I'm sitting there going, are you looking at our vehicles right now? Because we kind of have all of that. So we decided, you know what? The sun's going down. We don't know what we're in for. Let's find a place to make camp and regroup, recharge the batteries, get some warm food in us, get some rest. And about that time, I think Sean and I, I think both of our phones went off at exactly the same time for a severe weather alert in our area. Oh, no. And we're like, oh, crap. There were two opposing storms coming at us, one from the north, one from the south, and we were right in the middle of the two. Fortunately, we stayed right in the middle of two because that night was a spectacular lightning show, and we only got a smattering of rain. The game plan that we came up with was, you know what, we're going to take the road because the route from that point would run about another 40 miles and then cross another road to do the final leg into the Lila Sea Mine. So we were going to take the pavement all the way around, do the Lila Sea Mine, and then run it backwards from that part of the pavement to see how close we could get to the pavement that the culvert was cut by and see if we could figure out our way across from that side. That's what we did in order to connect the dots. You know, we were going and it was, there was a lot of sand. There was a lot of, I mean, this route has everything. It's got rock, it's got washes, it's got sand, it's got silt. Don't even think about it if it's wet because everything is a floodplain in this thing. And, you know, so we did that. And when we got back, you know, it's getting late again. It's getting late in the day, 5.30ish, I think. We get back to where? Get back to that culvert where you couldn't get across? We got back to that culvert. So you're on the other side. side. Okay. We're up on the highway. But we're on the other side of the road now. So we had to get up on that road in order to complete the route. And now, mind you, at the point where we got thwarted the day before, BLM was successful. They considered it a completed route because we made it to that pavement and you could run that pavement all the way to the Lila Sea Mine. And I'm like, no, that's not that's not the road we were doing here. Yeah. That's pavement, right? We're trying to do the traction road. That's we're a cheesy to, way out. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean Sean and I both talked about it. And we were like, you know, this this feels dirty. We need to do this. So the team, right, we we pushed on and we got back close to that pavement, but we had to get up there and and um Two of the scientists on the team were young women, 30-year-old uh, field scientists, which is awesome to see you know, young women in science, and especially out in the field. And Nicole, who was the biologist, she, I think it was her, right, Sean, that found the way up the embankment onto the pavement. Yeah, so there was, and, according to the map, there, were t- uh, there was a fork in the road on our way back. We had about two miles or so to go until we reached that place where the highway was elevated about 25 feet above the desert floor where with a steep berm where there wasn't anything to, you know there wasn't any way to go down that we could see from the highway now we have two miles and there's two ways to go so half the team went to the right her and i went to the left oh that sounds like a bad scooby-doo episode and let's it, split up we'll yeah. get to catch the bad guy right. this way so we get there and we get to the highway and we are literally the only thing keeping us from making a complete route and, and keep in mind at this point Billy and I have done our best to stay true to the original route. Lots of the original route is in wilderness area. We couldn't go there. A lot of it, though, has roads that parallel it. So we may have only been 100 feet, 300 feet away from the original route, but we were on a different road. But we tried hard. I would say we stayed true to about 60% of the original route, which to me is phenomenal. So the only thing keeping us from completing this is literally the distance of about two car lengths. Except the distance of two car lengths in 3D is... 25 foot elevation change that's almost vertical. Mm. 
And so we uh, had gotten to the berm, and I tried a couple different things. I'm like, there's nothing. And we looked over where they had made this culvert and stacked all of this overburden from building the berm that the highway is now on to keep it out of the flood area. And she looks over and goes, right there, I think that's it. And we both get out, we start walking, and we just high-fived and got everybody on the radio and go, get over here, we, we can complete the trail. I mean, it was, it, was sun, it was about 30 minutes from sunset. It was the end of the day, and we were like just jumping up and down. So explain this. I'm trying to picture this. You, this now goes over the road. Per, okay, so think about it this way, right? So, so like an overpass? No. So the road. No. Think of a road, right? Okay. So the road is an east-west road. It's a two-lane paved road, and it's raised, and it's raised on a berm because they're trying to keep it from getting washed away again. And it was uh, they built this big berm with culverts so that thing water from the north side of the road. Could, culverts meaning tunnels, tunnels for, for the water, so, so it could go on the south side and drain out. What was interesting is the route on the north side of the road, they built a ramp up for you to access the trail. On the south side of the road, it was about a, a 70% angle from the grade. There's no, and it was soft, right? You would damage your vehicle or damage the road by, by crawling up that. So that was a no-go. And so where we were at the bottom, at the base of that berm, we were able to make a right turn and follow the base of the road, of the berm parallel with the road, mm-hmm. And there was an easy up section and out right uh, at, over where they built the the, the there's like the almost col- like they built you an on ramp basically a little bit but it was un, it wasn't visible from the road it's no. only visible from the bottom <laughs> you have to be looking up at it to see it so at that moment that was the the cherry oh, on top 100 percent yeah it was a really that cool is moment. awesome and, and you have to remember this was about 60 percent of the way through we were trying to complete that last 40% and starting back at the finish and working our way back to the beginning, essentially going backwards on the way that we were going that entire time. Every time we had an obstacle, a washout, and we're talking about 20 foot drops, you know, that may have been, you know, 30 feet across and 20 feet straight down, like just nowhere to go. Obstacles, washouts, losing the trail, terrain hours and hours of picking our way at two three four miles an hour through this stuff not knowing if once we got there we'd have to turn around and do it all again because we wouldn't be able to connect the two segments mm. so the joy right. was we were able to connect the two segments get up on the highway and make sure that there was one complete gps route and that's what was so awesome about it and what's the long-term goal with having completed this meaning are you do you want to bring a a tractor out there at some point and and flatten no. it? No, 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 no. So, so the goals for this are conservation and preservation related. So that original route it incurred forty nine miles of wilderness, and we've routed around that before. The trace went straight into wilderness land. There was one part where there was a an old BLM marker so old that it's red and had a three-wheeler ATV decal on it. Mm, So probably Uh, late 80s, early 90s. Late 80s, early 90s. That was in the middle of the route that was directing people off of the route and into the wilderness land. So for decades, it's sending people into the worst possible place. So one of the lessons learned from when I did the EMHT was I did that by myself. And then when it came time to make it a compliant route, I had to sit down with all the BLM 
offices and explain to them why I made the choices I made. This time I was lessons learned, right? I had BLM with me. So the field manager is there approving the choices that we're making in our route selection. Yes, that's compliant. Yes, that's the better way. Yes, that's the more used route. You know, when we're looking at this at this marker, and he's like, this should not be here. So we all agreed that that shouldn't be there. And I said, can I take it out? He's like, if you can get it out of the ground, go ahead. So we <laughs> took it out. And it's hanging on my garage wall. How um, How are the BLM people to work with? Because we think, you know, as enthusiasts, we think of them as the enemy. And I know that that's not the case, but we just... Just like any government official, that's the enemy. You know, the police, the policeman yeah. behind me is trying to give me a ticket or whatever. It's just we have as humans, we don't like authority. We think it's, they're oppressive. Is that the case with BLM or or, or did you find the, well, the opposite? I think, I think a lot of it is who you meet and, and the circumstances that you meet them. So history lesson here. If you go back in the EMHT books, the original guidebooks that, that Dennis wrote in the 1980s, the first couple of pages of that are talking about how BLM are the good guys, that they're completely partnered up because they're in this for the common good of protecting and conserving the areas, yet providing balanced access. It goes back, there's this partnership between access and management. It wasn't always about just closure. So when I did the EMHT, right, the to your point, the, the narrative today is so often confrontation and, oh, we're gearing up for a battle. We're gearing up for a fight because, honestly, that's what gets people to donate. That's what gets people to become a member of something is, oh, there's a battle and I have to support it. When I did the EMHT, I intentionally was like, look, here's all of the wins. You win as a land manager, recreationists win, field scientists win, the environment wins, the animals win. Everybody wins. Show me where there's any form of negative for doing this and doing it together. And so, you know, last year, Mike Aarons and I, who's the BLM field manager for Needles, we were actually laughing. It's like we've been working together now for almost seven years and we haven't had one fight. And we are the only ones that have been able to open routes and partner up to have enthusiasts helping BLM manage the routes and assess them and fix them and give them reports on conditions. I mean, you know, after the York fire went through the preserve, it was my guys that went out there and did all the trail assessment reports and gave them to national parks to say, here's the condition of your routes. You know, partnership is a good thing. And it's not talked about often enough because the airwaves are dominated by the fight and the battle. And so this time, right, it was, the same crew, it's cooperation, it's, they were fully supporting it. We had three marked BLM vehicles. We had uniformed BLM personnel. They were on the clock. And then I, I got a, a actual BLM volunteer patch. Yeah. That, no kidding. That you just don't yeah. get, you have to yeah. go through a process and I was able to get that. So it's sitting on the headliner of right. my, uh, my Jeep. Unfortunately, now. you yes. didn't get so, the Rolex, which really mattered. Uh, it's in my pocket right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> they just don't know. <laughs> so, but, but everybody on the team that was not a BLM employee was designated on official volunteer time. We, we all have our numbers. We all have our packets and we were all covered by BLM insurance. If something happened, you know, we had our inreaches and we have our, our GMRS and we have some of us have hams, but we also had the BLM interagency communications in case we really had an emergency, right? We could call using their system. This was a fully sanctioned 
joint expedition with MDHCA sponsoring, BLM supporting, TEC, the Explorers Club, and Rolex also supporting. So, um, you know, you can't ever get a sustainable result out of a battle. Sooner or later, somebody's just waiting for the other side to go away, and then they're going to go do what they want. And that's why when you go into some of these wilderness areas, there's couches, there's tires, there's all kinds of stuff because people get angry. And if you don't allow people, this is like soapbox-ish, but if you don't allow people to experience an area, they don't care about the area. And then all you're going to be left with is the people who don't care about your rules. And, and keep in mind, there's plenty of stuff in the desert where the cartels are out there. There's grows. There's all sorts of illegal activity. Did you see any grows? Uh, not on this particular trip, uh, trip, but I've run across them quite a bit. Really? All the like time. Like marijuana grows? Yes. And so yes. What, what happens is when you reopen public land and you have people tra- traversing, the bad guys go away because they don't want to be in an area that people are coming by. And so opening roads is also good for that kind of thing as well. And we were out there and, and it, you know, the wash to the west of uh, Pahrump, uh, you guys have a lot of cleanup to do out there because it is gross. Really? I mean, it is the people dumped carcasses of animals out there. There were couches, uh, tires, boxes. You can see it was probably a party point in a few places where this people- This is part- like east of- uh, West of Pahrump and- on the California side, kind of on the yeah. on the state and line the- border. Okay. Yeah. And they're, you know, 40 feet inside of a wilderness marker. Because nobody's going out. That sucks. So the so you had asked what the kind of the the result of this is, <clears throat> and Billy mentioned conservation and and all that. The other thing is, I, I have to say thank you to the Truck Show Podcast audience because Billy's come on here. We've talked about MDHCA, which is now by the way, brand new website, the Mojave uh, if you go the, there, the Mojave, the, the Mojave Road. Road.org, you can go there. Uh, please get a membership, 50 bucks for a year, a uh, bunch of different stuff that we give you on that. But what I wanted to say was you guys have been so supportive because a ton of you have become members. You've sent me pictures on my DMs or emails about the collection of books that's sitting right there next to Lightning right now, the EMHT, four books, or the Mojave Road Guide. So the goal of this is to finish the trilogy that Dennis Casebeer originally envisioned. That was the Mojave Road, the East Mojave Heritage Trail, and the Old Traction Road. And so what Billy and I and our teams and and MDHCA want to do, once we get everything signed off and compliant with the BLM and the trail officially open and our volunteers go out and sign it and do all that stuff, we plan on having the last in the trilogy, the Old Traction Road guidebook. And we're talking about potentially doing. Hold on a second. Co-authored by Mr. Sean P. Holman. Uh, I don't know if we've uh, we've settled there, but I, I've oh, offered I, I have offered my uh, I've offered my volunteer hours to Billy if he uh, so desires. Well, here's, you know this is how he got on the trip. Right? I know that. I know that. So here's how we do it: <laughs> I, is that I so I I take Billy out and uh-huh. I, I befriend him. Uh-huh. I shoot him. I put him in the culvert. Yeah. Right. And then so you know what he knows now. Right. So you write it and you get all the credit and we just Billy and then just, what. D- that, that's it. It's like South Park, the underpants gnomes, where it's like uh, step one, steal underpants, and step three, make profit, and, and step two is just a shrug because they don't know what's happening exactly, in the middle. Exactly, right. <laughs> so what, what I wanted to say is, Billy and I just had this conversation the other day. The idea of having these hardback books, they're expensive, the printer doesn't do uh, this anymore, but we want to find somebody who can do a limited run of potentially 100 books for 100 bucks each or something like that. That would be a first edition hardback that would be very special 
You have um, to make them look identical. So it's yes. it's red, white, and blue with a gold and a gold one. Well, those are that each color represents uh, a different part of the trail. So Mojave okay. Road is green, and then this would be maybe a different color that would match your set. But the idea being that the first ones would be this hardback that you know we would sign. It would be special. It would be numbered. And then everything after that would be a paperback or downloadable file. So the idea being the first run of these really high-end first edition books would pay for all of the you know volunteers and signage and all the things that we would need to do to cover our costs and give somebody like our listeners who have collected all the books they can so far that final piece of the collection. And we don't know what the number will be. We don't know what the dollar amount would be. I'm just throwing out you know 100 bucks. I think people would pay more than 100 bucks to have something limited edition like that that goes with the rest of their collection. I don't think $100 is going to make you enough profit to do what you want to do. So, so we'll it's see. going to have to be more than profit. that. But I also think but, it's going to be important know, to take some of our listeners on some of the trail, not all hundred and some odd miles, but I, we've been talking about, yeah, bring a pick. Yeah, no, but, but in all seriousness, we've been, we've dedicated so many episodes to this topic. And I have a feeling that at least a couple dozen of listeners. And I mean, literally like we couldn't take a couple dozen out because that would go against uh, groups and you'd have to give a big massive permit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, what's the, what's, the, it, what number? What's the magic number to you? Well, I believe it's uh, seven vehicles total at a time. Okay. But I, I, would, I don't want to guide this trip. I want people to, to yeah. buy the guidebook and go do it themselves. No, but I, I get that. And people will do that because we have more than seven listeners with seven cars. I, I understand you know that. I mean? some trucks. So what I, I am suggesting well, and, is... And let's, that doesn't mean that there couldn't be multiples, right? I mean, right? You could do seasonal trips. You could, there's, there's a lot of options on the table, especially when it comes to... Right. I've put together the trails management program through the MDHCA where, you know, I have somebody who leads that. And we do take people out there for the purpose of assessing the routes, but they get to do the route because we're assessing. So it if you want to volunteer to be in a work party, then that changes everything. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I exactly. get that. But I think we should commemorate some of this and talking about this for so many shows. We owe our listeners. Whoever well, wants to come, let's we're, get, it's, we're, open, it's open for seven, eight spots. Well, we're, it. we're still premature. We still yeah. have a lot of work to do with the BLM. The reports have to come out. The approvals processes, it's got to get on maps. So we're we're talking about a year, 18 months, something like that. So a lot of stuff has to happen before then. What if we do a trial, we, ha- we haven't published the route yet either. No, 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 I get that. What if we do a trial on one of the existing routes that are already in one of these four books here? Sure, we could we could talk about that. Okay. We do that all the time. Yeah. All the resources and books, again, are available at themojaveroad.org, uh, which is the home of the Mojave Desert Heritage and Cultural Association. Please consider uh, signing up and getting a year of membership. It's 50 bucks. You also get seven nights of camping while you're there. Get a free digital subscription to OVR and, Magazine. And, and by the way, that facility is really cool. When yep. I took my son, who was 17 at the time, Quinn went out with me, and he had zero idea what to expect. And I'm not joking, Holman. He has asked to go back there several times, and he it was let's, just very, let's do it. He was very peaceful. He learned a lot while he was out there. It's just a lot to see. So, so the two things you need to know for somebody who wants to get back out there, uh, Spring Encampment and uh, Mojave Road Rendezvous. So the Spring Encampment happens in spring. It's volunteer. It's work parties. People come. Uh, Mojave Road Rendezvous is sort of a celebration of the organization. And what's beautiful about that is we have educational field trips. We'll take you out on guided tours like you're talking about because we have a special relationship 
with the federal agencies where we're allowed to do these field trips without a permit or with a, a permit that's over that encompasses what we're doing as an EFT educational field trip. Uh, and there's opportunities to go and gui- be guided. We also do uh, skills classes like how to plug a tire and how to winch, and then a ton of history. We'll take you to all sorts of places uh, where that are within a, a half a day's drive where uh, you can go experience history. Mines, uh, Mitchell Caverns. Mitchell uh, Caverns was awesome. Yeah, the the well, uh, I, we did an episode here on the show about yeah. it. Yeah, so cool. So. so if you can, if you can be a part of it, we'll talk about it in upcoming episodes as we near spring, and uh, we have to have people come join us at that venue out there it's just it's absolutely spectacular so billy in all seriousness thank you very much for for doing what you do i know they i play this a lot billy creech desert explorer but this truly is you were the explorer and this is one of those milestone events in your career and in and in holman's career i guess that you guys won't forget and hopefully you've inspired some of our listeners to do similar things in their life and or to be part of EMHT or the Western deserts. Like it's just a special place. And what you guys have done, seriously, hats off to you. When you go east, the reality is, is BLM land goes away. Public lands go away. Once you hit, you know, east of you know Colorado into Texas, north into Montana, it's either Forest Service or it's ranches or it's private land. The ability that we have to recreate in the desert southwest and all of the thousands upon thousands of miles that we get to go uh, get away from it all is is unique. It's spectacular. And Mojave Desert is a top 10 most, I guess, rugged, desolate uh, place in the entire world. And it's right here in our backyard. I don't think people realize that the Mojave Desert is as foreboding and dangerous as it as it is. But uh, for us to be able to enjoy it is is pretty, pretty amazing. People recreate. They want to go have fun, but they can also combine doing some good while they're having fun. That's how I got started was I did a project and it got good to me. Right. I was like, Ooh, I like this. I like doing something that benefits the environment, people, whatever it may be. I can make better use of my time rather than just driving through something. I can actually do some projects that's how I got started. And it, and it feels really good. Like now I don't even like going on trips really where I don't have a project. I actually have to intentionally plan stuff where I don't have something scoped out. It's relaxing. Yeah. But doing something good makes you just, you know, you get a pep in your step when you complete it. You know, we have the MHG Facebook page for people interested in doing that. Want to learn more about it. Just jump on it. And Sean and I both administer that page. And there's a ton of information out there. No question is too dumb or beginner level because it's about people being able to get out there and have fun and do it responsibly. So we're here to help. So if you want to uh, follow uh, Billy on Instagram, it's at Fractal Exploration, or you can follow MDHC at the Mojave Road. And of course, the MojaveRoad.org. Please check it out uh, if you're into this sort of thing. It's it's pretty awesome. And Billy, we, uh, we thank you for for. Carving out more time and spending uh, this instead of traveling the desert uh, with us. It's amazing that we caught you with a cell signal, was what I was telling uh, Lightning <laughs> earlier. Uh, we uh, we are excited for you to go to New York and present in front of the uh, the big Explorers Club at the New York uh, headquarters, which is amazing. And I'm sorry you have to give the flag and the Rolex back. That I, sucks. I just hope that they have uh, you know his walk-on music, and it'll be... Billy Creech, Desert Explorer. Hey-ho! Teach us what you know. 
Go ahead, Billy. We're waiting. Billy? <laughs> that should be his walk-on music. In fact, he thought you did that lightning until I did it in front of him. He's like, you son of a... <laughs> oh, this whole time he's been blaming me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did, yes. Oh, that's funny. All right, Billy, you're the Bill, man. He did the voice live. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, job well done. We'll check in soon. All right, brother. See you on the trail well, soon. Thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate you, right, you guys helping you know get word out about the MDHCA and the work out there because it's important, right? Without, without support, without people, it goes away. So, Well, it's ain't, it ain't going to go away with the amount of uh, effort you guys are willing to put in. So thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Catch, catch you right. later. Later. Tell me about where you were this last week. You were up in Diamond Bar at the SEMA headquarters, correct? So I uh, went to uh, the SEMA garage because they had a measuring session. I know we've talked about measuring sessions on the uh, podcast before, but I don't know if you've talked about like like a deeper dive into what they actually are. So SEMA invited some select media out to come watch a Toyota measuring session in action uh, on the new Tacoma. Which, by the way, is not normal. Normally, they no. do not have press. No. And it's, so, it's like, like my engineers from Banks will yeah. go up there and we bring 3D scanners and we scan the A-pillar for like the pod or we, yeah. we pull out the intake so and we scan the engine they let, bay. They give us badges. We walked around the facility. We could go anywhere we want, interact with people who were scanning, ask them about it. I thought it was pretty cool. They had four Tacomas there. Each of the garages had two trucks, uh, four of the trim levels, a pro uh, I think a uh, might have been the baseball, like a SR or something like that, a Trail Hunter, and I think a uh, might have been a TRD off road. And then they had two to drive, and I got seat time for the first time in the 2024 Tacoma. So I thought we'd uh, give a little bit of a truck review. Truck review, yeah, rolling colon dragon truck nuts. So there was a drive not too long ago out at uh, Calamigos Ranch near uh, Malibu, and it was the first drive of the Tacoma, which I was not able to go to because I was at the LA Auto Show at the OVR activation, and I was like, man, the one truck that I should be in driving, I missed the opportunity. <sighs> and then the SEMA invite came. They said, and we'll have vehicles available for you to drive. And I went, oh, I have to go there. So it was pretty cool. Went and uh, had some seat time, talked to uh, some Toyota folks. I'm working right now uh, still, but it looks like it's almost dialed in. Uh, first part of the year, Sheldon Brown, the chief engineer from uh, Tacoma, is going to come on the show. Yes, please. So working on that, and uh, the Toyota people are like, yeah, what do you need? We'd love to get you know some more content. So I didn't do any interview of the Toyota folks because I wanted to get Sheldon on the phone to really talk us through Tacoma, right? Okay. And uh, but they gave me the keys and they said, here's a 20 minute drive loop, uh, sign out, you know, and take it for a ride. So I jumped in and uh, took it for a 20 minute loop. And all right. So uh, this was the mid level uh, build. So not a pro. This was a TRD off road and it didn't have the coil springs in the back like the Trail Hunter or the Pro do. This had leaf springs and this was the non hybrid iForce. So uh, not the iForce Max, which is the hybrid. So uh, basically, this was the volume vehicle, and it's a 2.4 liter turbocharged engine, and it makes uh, 278 horsepower and 317 pound-feet of torque, so pretty healthy. Uh, when you overlay the hybrid, which will be the premium engine, that jumps up to 326 horsepower and 465 pound-feet of torque. Wow. The reason I bring that up isn't because I drove the iForce Max, I just drove the standard one. But it gave me a reference point for what's coming in the future. So from the time they handed me the keys, 
I opened the door. These were prototypes, so like they're all the plastics inside were smooth and they weren't grained yet, but it was you know pretty accurate, right? Got in, dude. Seating position, way better. Really? So um, you're off, you were off the floor. Yeah, seat comfort was awesome. I like the dash better than the uh, Tundra. It's, it's still chunky and angular, but it doesn't feel as busy. Although the screen looks really out of place because it's freaking giant. Oh, really? How big is it? You know, just guesstimate. Uh, it's a 14 inch screen, so it's massive. I think it's the same size as the Tundra. It just feels like a Tundra, like that's been shrunk. Drives like a Tundra, uh, which is a good thing. Power felt pretty good. I would say that it's not the best sounding engine ever. But uh, they found the transmission really responsive. It's definitely torquey. Uh, I think people will enjoy driving it. It definitely feels faster and, and just beefier than the uh, the V6. And keep in mind, I had a really short amount of time. But things I don't like about the current truck were all basically fixed. Fully modern interior. You know, the gauge cluster was a full display. So lots of great information there. Steering wheel was comically fat and big. I think that it came straight out of the Tundra. I, I would have liked it to be a little downsized for the Tacoma because it just was this giant, you know, uh, ring in my hands. The uh, the screen was great. Super, super clear as far as like, you know, just the uh, resolution and, Your and all that. Your inky blacks that you yeah, love. Yeah, inky blacks, the contrast ratio. Tell me about the ergonomics, like volume controls, knobs, stuff yep, like that. knobs had it. Everything's oversized. You can use it with a glove. Like I said, the inside is really good, but it's almost comical in the sense where they're like, let's make that glove 20% bigger because, right? Um, but it doesn't bother me. It's just like, it's it's silly. Uh, the grab handle on the side had like this integrated kind of molly sort of deal, and it was way more structurally sound than like a Bronco passenger grab handle down by the leg. So that was that was nice to see. Uh, sight lines were, were pretty good out of it. It was pretty pretty darn quiet. And it rode, like the way I like it, just that nice taut ride where it's it's firm, but it's not uncomfortable. Soaked up the potholes, got it up to about 60 miles an hour, and even though it was a prototype, drove great. Now, now Definitely the, drives like a Toyota. Sounds I, like a Toyota. I was going to say, everyone who owns a Tacoma, they all call them shift happy, right? It's constantly banging yeah. between gears, not happy. Now, the SEMA garage is up on a... Top of a Big hill. hill. Bill, so how was it going up and down the grades? Yeah, good. No, no issues. Transmission felt like it was uh, dialed in exactly how you wanted it to be. And then now they got they finally got rid of that ancient five-speed uh, automatic that's in the 4Runner and the six-speed automatic that's in the today's Tacoma. So it's an eight-speed automatic. So that's similar to like what the GM trucks are. The GM trucks have that uh, 2.7 liter turbo four with an eight-speed automatic. Mm-hmm. So... I think that mid-size class is starting to kind of filter out a little bit. Of course, we talked about you know, the Ranger, what it has in it. Uh, Nissan's got the nine-speed behind the uh, the 3.8-liter V6. So, man, the mid-size market is, it's a battle. is battling. It's, it's, it's crazy. Lots of really cool features. I was pretty impressed because they were going through the presentation on all the things that they thought about that were important to uh, Tacoma owners. And they really did listen to their customers, right? They wanted you to have choice. So the grade lineup, there's now eight trim levels. It that, seems excessive. It yeah. does, yeah, it does seem excessive. So basically uh, three cab configurations. You and got, it seems so unlike Toyota. They're just like, you get this color and this configuration and that's it. Well, now you get an extra cab with a six-foot bed, a double cab, with a, a six or uh, a five foot bed, the double cab is basically the short rear doors. The extra cab is like the original extended cab, extra cab Toyota of the mid 80s, except there's no rear seat in the back. 
So you got a window, hmm. but there's no door, no rear seat. They have this whole cargo area with like a, a pegboard and you know storage and all the stuff to put back there, but they're not putting people back there. And then you can get the uh, double cab with either a five-foot bed or a, uh, a six-foot bed. The extra cab is kind of cool. It's basically a two-person truck, but looks like an extended cab. Uh, tons of wheel and tire choices, tons of tech, tons of features. The engine felt good. I did not drive the base base model, which is only 228 horsepower and 243 pound-feet. That's basically made for you know, fleets and stuff like that. But overall, man, I was uh, I was pretty impressed. I can't wait to like take it off-road. The Tacomas are going to start hitting dealerships as you're hearing this podcast. But the premium models with the uh, hybrid engine won't be coming out until probably Q2, middle of Q2, end of Q2 next year. So if you want the manual transmission, you want the regular engine, the non-hybrid, TRD, uh, you know, off-road or some of the mid-level uh, ones, you can, you'll be able to start buying those immediately. But I think people are going to be really excited about it. Uh, the premium upgrade is a 10-speaker JBL system that has a what they call an externally coupled subwoofer. And then there's the center channel pops out and becomes a Bluetooth speaker. So you can basically, uh, you know, you it's your center channel, but you can basically remove it and take it with you as a Bluetooth speaker, which is kind of cool. So they're thinking of all sorts of stuff. Obviously, all the safety stuff is cool. And uh, I, I was just, I was impressed. Here's what I didn't know about SEMA measuring sessions. They actually, so Toyota, and we'll talk about this in, in the interview I did with, uh, with Spags, but they, were t- they actually have like mechanical engineers, aerodynamicists, and techs from Toyota, they're taking like bumpers off, lights off, like dismantling the vehicle. So somebody who needs to go, oh, I need the radiator dimensions. I need what the back of the headlight looks like. I need to scan what's behind the bumper. All that. They were like, okay, we'll take all that off. Well, it's we incredible. Had, we had a team of three. Did you run into my guys? I did not. Okay, so we had three guys up there. We scanned the A-pillar for the I-Dash Stealth Pod. And we had, um, and we, we pulled out, well, I think with the with the Toyota guys, they let us pull out the airbox so we could scan the cavity under the oh, airbox. Yeah. And then the airbox itself. I'm sure it's going to be a race, us against others, to get a uh, an intake system out for that truck. But... Um, it was really neat, the fact that you can, yeah, you just pull the truck apart like Legos, you know? Yeah. So the, I, the one thing they didn't allow us to do, which is kind of interesting, they didn't allow us to put in gear. So we, but who didn't, SEMA or Toyota? I don't know. This was here, say, through my oh, engineer, so I don't know exactly. I would have just done it anyway. Or is it because they wouldn't let you start it up? Oh, I think that was it. We yeah. had to start it up and put it reverse. That's, that's yeah. probably why. It's because they probably had pieces removed from it for other, because there's multiple people measuring. Like there's, the, you basically walk in, you have an appointment, you have a set amount of time. There may be four, five, six, seven, eight companies all in there at the same time working with each other. And I saw people working on seat covers who are laying cardboard templates and fabric templates and marking them. I saw another guy who was doing, you know, scanning headlights. I saw another guy that was in the inti- in the um, engine compartment. I saw somebody else scanning suspension. And then there's a couple of fun little factoids that I picked up looking underneath it. On the Trail Hunter, it was up on the hoist. It's a pre-rear axle exhaust dump. No way. So it has way. a 90-degree turn That's down in, in front of the rear axle, so you don't have to worry about dragging your exhaust right, tips right. and stuff like that. A bunch of stuff like that. Uh, just kind of nice to touch the vehicle, see the vehicle, and really just spent some time. You know, It was a short drive, but I walked away going, oh, the other thing, braking. So I hate the Tacoma brakes, especially the drums. Oh, they feel. But, but awful. what I hate about them is they're they're yeah. spongy yet yes. grabby. Yes, and the more you push, it doesn't do anything. We had a twenty three that uh, twenty two or twenty three that we rented and brought up to uh, a, an event in the mountains. In the brakes, I couldn't awful. believe how awful they yeah. were. Yeah, and the way the steering wheel new. and those curvy A pillars, it's just it just doesn't feel substantial. This new truck, the brakes are fantastic on it. They they were really good, at least on the model I drove. 
big chunky, you know, A pillars and everything's square. It feels fully modern. So chalk me up to uh, being impressed. I think if you're a Toyota owner, you are going to be pretty excited about the new truck. I think if you're on the fence for a truck, you'll want to take a look at it. And I think they're covering a wide swath of the market, which is pretty cool. So we'll we'll see how it does. You know, obviously uh, Ford has got their crosshairs uh you know, aim directly at them and, you know, GM's doing stuff and Nissan's got their stuff. And I just think it's awesome because, you know, 15 years ago, the midsize truck market was all but dead. And here we are having a renaissance and there's some amazing product coming out. I will say the rear seat is really tight on it though. Hmm. Really tight. So you're, you're, you're talking about just the, is the angle? double cab? No, just like there's, there's just not a lot of space for legs back there. Hmm. So yeah. So for, uh, you know, a, a few minutes with the truck, a quick drive, a few miles, um, First impressions, pretty impressed. All right, so uh, when I was done uh, driving the uh, truck, I pulled into uh, the parking space, and I hear, and I'm like, don't tell what? me you backed into Mike's well, back. What did I hit? And I look in my mirror, and <laughs> there's President SEMA walking and goes, what'd you hit? I'm like, apparently the President SEMA. So he hit the side of the truck as uh, I pulled in to uh, mess with me, and I said, all right, now you owe me an interview. So here's a couple of minutes with uh, Mike Spagnola, President of SEMA, talking about SEMA Garage. How's it yeah. going? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. It's always so, fun. So we're here. I remember when this facility opened back in 2013, which it doesn't seem like it was 10 years ago, but it was. It was 10 years ago. Done. The idea behind this place was to help aftermarket companies develop products ahead of time with the blessing of the manufacturers right. so that there were aftermarket products on sale when the vehicle came. And so exactly. measuring sessions have become this really sort of special event when a new model, especially a new enthusiast model comes out because these guys don't have to make a deal with their local dealership or find a customer who was the first one to buy one where they can actually come and start measuring for parts. Now, I was kind of surprised knowing about it. I was walking around the garage. You're blowing cars apart. There's seats oh. that are out of it. Oh. There's the whole front fascia is missing. All, you know, all sorts of, you guys have four Tacomas and there's Faro arms and there's people <laughs> doing cardboard templates and there's people fitting stuff. This is amazing. It really is. It's to, to get four different models of the new Tacoma here to be able to work alongside Toyota, have those vehicles here. I mean, some of those models aren't gonna come out for another four or five months. Yeah. And, and to have them here, I mean, you can tell some of them are prototypes, some of the finishes on the flares and all that aren't Oh yeah, exactly yeah. Not, not grained, right. kind of shiny or matte right. finish. And you guys actually have two vehicles, Toyota brought two for to drive. Yeah. Those are the non-hybrids, kind of the, the core of the market, which will be out here in a few weeks. And then, the other ones, the iForce Max ones, so Trail Hunter, TRD Pro, those are in the garage. And you, to your point, they're not coming out till like middle of Q2 or later right. next year. These companies are going to have a head start of months to be able to get product ready. Yeah, so that, that's the whole idea of it. And to be able to work alongside Toyota and for Toyota to understand, you know, they could say, well, wait a minute, we've got our own accessory team or, you know, yeah. why do we need the aftermarket? So for them to understand that the aftermarket is part of this equation and it's critical and that you know the more products that are available for these trucks when the vehicles come out means they're going to have more sales that that you know they get it and uh, and then for our manufacturers to get to come in as you said and develop products and and have high quality engineering sessions with CAD data and all yeah. those sorts of things and to talk to the Toyota engineers who were here. Well, I was going to bring that up. I was talking to the Toyota guy and they said, you know, we do measuring sessions different. I wanted to ask you about that because I'm here and there's a aerodynamicist, there's a mechanical yep. engineer, there's a, a marketing person, there is a, um, a couple of Toyota techs from their tech center who can help disassemble, reassemble parts to help you get to the area. 
So Toyota not only brings you a variety of vehicles, they bring you a variety of professionals within the organization yep. to help the aftermarket navigate it. How does that compare to, you know, and not to call any other manufacturers out, but just, you know, on a one-to-one, like, this is what Toyota did for this. Is that normal? Do yeah, other manufacturers some, like some manufacturers get it and, and they'll bring a team? Yeah. I got to tell you, Toyota is all out. I mean, yeah. they do these training sessions. There's one going on right yeah, next yeah, to us right yeah. now, and so they get they get the fact they really really embrace the aftermarket, and it's fun uh, to see. We've got over 200 manufacturers here this week, and in wow. fact, in fact, I was a little worried because they're crawling over the top of each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I got to tell you though, what's even cool is competitors are here. Yeah, and. Um, and they get along. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're, you know, punching each other out. They're, yeah. they're. Uh, I've seen where wheel guys will come and they'll be like, "All right, you measure the front wheels, I measure the <laughs> rear wheels, and we'll exchange data." You yeah, know? there but, you go. But um, it really is a collaboration between SEMA manufacturers and the OEs, and to be able to have all this development work now, so that the day that new model hits the road, consumers have accessories and have choices ready to go. And Toyota, as do some other manufacturers, understand that helps them sell more vehicles. Well, and you know, Toyota, to your point about being you know aftermarket friendly, Toyota is a, a very conservative Japanese company, global brand. They don't just pair their brand with anybody. And on some of the releases, like the Trail Hunter, you're looking at Old Man Emu, and you're looking at ARB, and you're looking at on Pro, you got Fox Shocks. I mean, right. so they've all, oh, Rigid Lights was the other one I was thinking of. So they have already partnered through their OE channel for these production ones, yet they're still willing to offer it up to some of the competing companies that might make a product that takes that really highly curated quote-unquote aftermarket part that came on the factory often replace it with something else it, it's it's it, incredible that they that they're you know they're open to that it's amazing you, you know you and i saw this happen when the lightning came out right? oh yeah when the, when, when the new ford uh lightning came out or, or the raptor i should say that when the new raptor came out back then it was like well this truck's perfect why, yeah, would, why anybody, would anyone mess you know, with it and it was already seventy thousand yeah. dollars or something back <laughs> yeah. then and people would buy these brand new raptors yeah. and Blow them apart. Blow them apart. <laughs> it's like, and they'd put all these, you know, and next thing you know, you got a $120,000 Raptor. Yeah. Uh, and it was amazing to see, because I, I, I've been in this business all my life, and I, I honestly, that was an area that I missed. I was like, why would anybody already touch this yeah. thing? And it took me a few months to realize that people still want to individualize. They still want to make it. I mean, you look at this Tesla Cybertruck, and it comes in one color, right? right, right. And it's like, you know, I was recently uh, at a, an aftermarket parts manufacturer, and they were unveiling some of their products. And it's it's like people are like, well, why would you do that? Well, because the Cybertruck really only comes one flavor, right? right? So you have to do that. And I think Tesla's now come out and say, oh, well, you can get a white or a matte black wrap on it or something yeah. for the factory, right? But it's exactly that. It's the fact that people still want to, you know, the automotive aftermarket is an extension of the driver. Right. You know. And it is amazing that you see, you know, I mean, years ago you wouldn't have seen a Tacoma with all these products on it. And honestly, a lot of them are aftermarket yeah. products. I mean, we know yeah. where the shocks are made. We know who makes sure. the wheels. We know yeah. all of that. Um, you know, now, I mean, we're talking, there's an OE that's going to be coming out with uh, wraps, you know. So you'll be able to order your new truck yeah. with a different color wrap on it. And, uh, well, that's and, great for the secondary market, right? Because, yep. you know, you bring it in after going off-roading, you take the wrap off, it's got pristine paint underneath, and yep. it probably raises the value for, you know, the next guy who's going to yeah, buy it off sure. a lot or something like that. So the always watches. I mean, obviously, they come to yeah. the show. Even 
OEs that aren't displaying at the show. They send buyers along and understand what the aftermarket's doing. Yeah, they got to see the trends and figure yeah. out where where the market's going. And you know, usually um, by the time the OE kind of picks it up, we've moved on we've to something to else, thing, yeah. right? Um, but it's it's great to see so many companies that are embracing the aftermarket, and it's great to see now. Not everybody can come here. I mean, right. you have to be a member, you have to be a manufacturer, but again, we're in Southern California. You guys have a SEMA garage in Detroit that's about three times the size of this one. Yep. And the data that SEMA collects, not just, I mean, you can come in here with your own ferro arm and your scanner and all that and do all the stuff for your specific product. I wanna, I need to know what the, you know, the cloth insert between the bolsters is because we're doing a seat cover or something. Yep. Maybe you don't provide that data, but you know, to that granular level, but you have the CAD data on the vehicle and you have your own measure. That can go out to any SEMA member. You don't have to be here to, to have access to that. And yeah, that's correct. one of the benefits. You know, it's funny because I thought when we really started offering, and we've got tens of thousands of CAD files now. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, when we start offering all this CAD data, do we still need measuring sessions? Yeah. We do. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, you know, do magazines, does print really go away when, you know, other forms come no, out? The no. The answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> Yet both still exist, right? Yeah. And you see that in so many things. Yeah. Well, they, they want to have the connection and they want to visualize their part in yep. the real world. And then you don't get a sense of scale or anything like right. that too, right? Like the computer tells you it works, that's great, but you want to like feel that really positive snapping of that product into yeah. the vehicle and go, yeah, that's that's right. And the again, the opportunity to talk to Toyota engineers yeah. and all that to be here uh, and to hang out in the garage. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. The face it, they just want to come hang out in the garage. Well, the garage is awesome. So you have two garages, plus you have the uh, above-ground all-wheel drive dyno. Yeah. You've got the emissions lab here so that you can help people with uh, carb certification for 50-state emissions legality on, on products. Do you offer measuring sessions also out of the, the Detroit, Detroit garage as well? We do. Yeah, okay. we do. So we've just started that. The garage, Detroit garage is a year old now, and it's got stuff there that we don't have here. It's yeah. got this ADOS center that's just high-tech, you know, well, and we've we've covered ADOS yeah, on the podcast yeah. a little bit, but yeah, that but is it is it is the cool thing now. We got OEs going there because yeah. I mean, they're seeing things, and we're, that's another example where, you know, we are trying to understand where we and we've talked about this, but yeah. you know what happens when you lift a truck. The OEs are coming to say, okay, yeah. what'd you find? Yeah, yeah. sensors, yeah. cameras, all that. Because yeah. a lot of time, the person who runs the aftermarket division at an OE isn't necessarily tied to the OE engineers that right. did it. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a disconnect internally or they're siloed a little bit. So sometimes they don't have, or they have all this data, but it's only at stock ride height. They don't know what happens when right. you level it. And right. you're talking about cameras, sensors, recalibrating, what, you know, some manufacturers have systems in place where you can replace a bumper, no big deal. There's a camera, it's not sensors, right? Or you have a, you know companies that the whole bumper is a radar and sensors. And so you have to understand what your limitations are because uh, all of this advanced um, safety stuff is going to have a, a major impact on the way we do business in the aftermarket. Absolutely. And it's going to become mandatory. Right now it's still optional, but the consumer wants it. Yeah. Well, NHTSA and, you know, all the government agencies are starting to say, okay, you have to have automatic braking now, yeah. right? And so yeah. now that you have to have it, um, it becomes mandatory. We got to make sure those vehicles still stop. Well, and you got to make sure that you don't incur liability or the wrath of the government at some point if you, you know, because there's a lot of people who do mods and they go, well, I don't care if there's lights on the dash. Yeah. But I think consumers are more savvy now and they do yeah. care. Sure. And you want to make sure that all the systems you know, that came on the vehicle, if you want to be a good citizen, right, yeah. will still, still work. Yeah. And that way you don't run afoul yeah. of anybody that could potentially yeah. 
undo I, it for you. I paid for that technology. Yeah. I, I want to use it. Yeah. I mean, I've got my Wrangler, and uh, it's got adaptive cruise. It's got a two and a half inch lift with thirty sevens. Works perfectly. Yeah. You know, I use it every time I'm on the freeway. Uh, it's amazing. Now I get into one of my older cars, and it doesn't have a backup <laughs> camera. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh I, I got to turn around. I, gotta, I don't think I like this anymore. Yeah. I, I want to get back in my vehicle that's got whatever this technology is. And we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna get more and more used to lane change, departure warning, sure. and self braking, and all those sorts of things. That, it's, you know, you start to become dependent so, on it. So looking at today's session, so it was a media invite. So you've got all of this week, companies can sign up for blocks of time. They can come in, do what they need to do. But what's kind of interesting is indifferent is that you invite the media in to see what a yeah. measuring session looks like. Um, was that Toyota's idea? Was that a collaboration with you guys? It was a collaboration. Yeah, okay. it really was. I think, you know, Toyota was up for Some OEs aren't ready to kind of sneak yeah, yeah. out, you know. I mean, we've had... Stuff here where everybody's got to sign in, yeah, yeah, of course. your phone, yeah. you know, in the other room, yeah. and you know you can't take pictures of the vehicle. So we've had that kind of uh, measuring session before, yeah. but in this case, it was really cool to allow the media in, yeah. um, along with well, obviously these manufacturers. And boy, talk about pent up demand for this vehicle. I mean, again, I think you and I talked about it six, eight weeks ago, and I yeah. said, yeah, it's coming in December. Yeah, and uh, it's been really, really well received. It's. People are crawling over each other here. It's uh, and then to again have media here on top of that, to have the opportunity to talk to you and some others, and um, and for you know for our manufacturers to be able to talk to the media as well, yeah. you know, is it's boy, it's just a win for everybody. It really is. No, it's great, and and the fact that Toyota provided a couple uh, uh, prototypes to drive. I took the uh, the solar uh, orange you know yeah. TRD off road out for drives the first time. So. I had the LA Auto Show activation with OVR, and right. that was when the first drive happened at Calamigos up in Malibu. And so I wasn't able to go, and I saw all these people talking about it. I'm like, I have a podcast, and I have no frame of reference for talking about how the Tacoma drives that all these people have talked about. So I got my seat time. It's, you know, we'll cover it in a different segment, but it was incredibly impressive. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a really good truck, both for Toyota and then also for the industry, because I think Toyota's really taken seriously the enthusiast needs on this and yeah. the ability to be a, a fantastic foundation you can build upon. Did you hit anything on the way in? Or did you? Just the president of SEMA. <laughs> so you, you, I, I may have been recording. I'll have to see if I can find it, but I was pulling into a parking spot and I saw. Uh, El Presidente out of the corner of my eye and I hear a big thud and I'm like, there's no way I hit anything. And I see him walking by, walks up to my door and he goes, what'd you hit? And I go, the president of SEMA. So I was, I was, uh, you, I will say you startled me. I didn't know that you were going to hit the side of the truck, but then I realized it was you very quickly. So I was able to go, oh, you bastard. <laughs> I slammed the side of the truck and he hit the brakes. Really yeah, hard. I did hit the brakes. I'm like, oh, of course, I'm I'm the first guy to drive this thing here today. And I'm the first guy to run over a, you know, a parking curb or something. And then I saw Mike and I was like, all right, oh, all is well with the world. All right. Well, uh, appreciate it. Uh, congrats on uh the success obviously SEMA Garage continues to grow and be an important part of the industry and I don't know if we said this earlier but it was brought to my attention there is no other facilities like your two in the United States or North America for for assisting aftermarket companies to make products if SEMA didn't exist none of this would be able to be done elsewhere that that is an amazing achievement to me that you guys have the market cornered and the ability to offer that service to uh, the aftermarket in this competitive world it's fun to have something that (laughs) that's your own that's our own and uh but it really is. It's, it's for the manufacturers, right? I mean, our whole goal is to make sure manufacturers grow and prosper, and this is a great tool for them to do that and get new pro- – you know, the way you grow your business is yeah. more things to sell and more people to sell them to. And so, well, the you know, the garage offers you an opportunity to get more things to sell, and the SEMA show gives you opportunity to sell to more people. So, Well, when you get into uh, podcasting to you know, make those businesses grow, let me know. Yeah, I'll be the first guy it. at the door. You got it. All right. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks, Mike. Yep. 
Dude, we are uh, way overdue for reading your email, so let's get into it if you don't mind. You email? Yeah, I email. Do it. We email. That's right. Everybody email. Type it up. You email. Proofread. I email. Send it. We email. Click it. Everybody email. Kind of disappointed you didn't say send it like you always do. I'm enjoying the music. It also is uh, about midnight here on the West Coast recording this, so uh, it's not far from the truth. This uh, this one hurts. All right, um, <laughs> I'm gonna start. Well, shouldn't you with... tell people why real quick though? Like we're we're trying to give you guys shows through the holidays, so we're like doubling up on we're, shows. We're, don't tell them. Okay. No, it's no, it's this recorded yesterday. Live, live. Oh, if you're listening to it live. today, we recorded yeah, it yesterday. Nothing about midnight and us being super punchy. <laughs> End of an episode Easter egg. Lightning and Dave. Lightning and Dave. Dave? He's talking to Dave, our new social guy, Yeah, Dave? remember when we had the little Easter egg of him saying we sucked on his way out? Lightning and Dave. I love the Easter egg at the end of season two, episode 48. That was hilarious. Thanks for that, Seth Anderson. You know what's funny is that is the first time somebody has sent an email that has not been addressed to both of us. Well, in the history is, of the podcast. That's weird. It is weird. Hmm. Uh, okay. Do you, do you feel okay about that? Yeah, I don't care. Give Dave some love? Go, yeah, dude, Dave's kicking ass. All right, All right so I got this one uh, called Christmas Biscuits. And, yes. Uh, this is from Dylan Hudson. says, hey, gents, just thought I should reach out. Been a long-time listener and have been deeply disturbed by the show since its conception. It's like a horrible <laughs> explosion. I stay at it hoping for more. As painful as the advertisements are on the show, they work. I've purchased $1,000 worth of products from your sponsors, Bill Stein, Banks, Z Automotive, and a few more that you've had on the show. I have these products in all three of my trucks, an 06 GMC 1500, 15 Ram 3500, 17 Ram 1500, and have some on the wife's truck as well, 23 Ram 1500 DT, when she isn't looking. But I just wanted to express the enjoyment I had for the earworm, Christmas Biscuits. Not a huge fan of traditional Christmas songs, but what a beauty. Christmas songs about biscuits, I hear. This is something I can get behind. I've been humming it at work nonstop. Thank goodness I work in a loud environment, so everyone has earplugs. In uh, case I couldn't hold a tune. <laughs> right, can we turn that off? Because he's the only one who wrote to say he liked Christmas oh. biscuits. Anyway, uh, he says I couldn't hold a tune in a bucket if my life depended on it. And uh, two, I don't need no one searching my truck for biscuits. They would steal all my truck snacks. And yes, truck snacks are a thing. Thanks for your dedication to the industry and they most... <laughs> The mostly quality-ish content y'all put <laughs> quality-ish. out. Quality-ish? Uh, five stars. Five star review! Five stars! Finnegan, yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. And six or seven Christmas biscuits for dessert, please. Thanks, Dylan, in the greatest white north. Dylan, I think your uh, brain is frozen. I think uh, I think if I play another Christmas biscuit here, Holman will punch me in the nose, so I'm going to give it to you after the show. <sighs> Frontier Spotting from Thomas Leith. First one I've seen on my work drive. Couldn't get a better pick, but it has the graphics on the side. Pretty sure I'm also the only smart 451 with an iDash. Oh, he's got a smart car with an iDash in it. That's <laughs> hilarious. Uh, hey, I need to interview you for the uh, uh, the weekly newsletter at uh, Banks. Of weird, so, yeah. weird crap you put our products in? Uh, yes, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> okay. uh, let's see. Uh, so, Thomas, I will reach out to you. He's got a cool... Uh, Email address, dirtracer412. All right, so uh, Trevor Nemiro writes us and says, uh, how many times is Stephen Watson going to write or call in before you invite him back on the show? Listen, Trevor, I'll have you know, 
Stephen Watson is booked for an upcoming show. Yes, All right, so is. just calm down. Over He's there, actually on the calendar. He is actually on the calendar. Uh, he says, what's wrong with you guys? How rude can you get? I want to hear what's going on in his world and ask him when he's going to get on the 05 Dana 60 bandwagon. I don't own a square anymore, but I think I talked to him a couple years back, and he said they were experimenting with them. Kingpin 60s are like two to $5,000 for crusty stock takeouts, at least here in California, so they're hardly a feasible go-to anymore. Several people ran them on the 2023 UA, Ultimate Adventure, and I only saw Dave broke a stock 1480 shaft, so I think there's enough validation that the OMG ball joints and unit bearings isn't an issue. While you're at it, what's going on with the rest of the hardcore off-road world? Vern started his own shop, it looks like. Yes, he did. That's Vern Simons, uh, previously of uh, JP fame. And can you check in with him? Uh, Vern and I talk probably, I don't know, we text back every couple weeks, and I have asked him if he wants to be on the show, and I think he would be happy to do it. He said, and Trent, I'm assuming Trent McGee, was down supporting some race team for the 1,000. What's the story there? I'll see Trent next month at uh, MPMC, I believe. Uh, Christian is building some cool new international. Maybe have him talk about that in the future of UA with your old corporate overlord. So that's Mm -hmm. Christian Hazel. And uh, Christian and I talk on a pretty regular basis, and he would definitely be down to come on, coming on the show. Uh, maybe get someone like Jesse Haynes on to talk about some gnarly buggy rear steer type stuff. Or how about Gomez Brothers Racing, talk about entrepreneurs and mountain enterprise. Keep the suckage up. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, you guys. Love you, mean it. Bye. And I think that Mr. Fred Williams would come back on the show, because guess what? I just sent him a bunch of bank bars. Oh, good. So uh, I, I, I talked to him. I saw him at SEMA, and I saw him on a GM drive. And uh, we briefly talked about it. So I think he would come back on. If, uh, Dave Chappelle would come back on. Uh, if we want to have Dirthead Dave on as well. Finnegan's booked for uh, early of ne- uh, early part of next year. Fantastic. So we've got a lot of good stuff coming. I promise you guys that. So this one says, hello, light bulb and holy man. I'm not sure if you still send stickers for Frontera sightings. <laughs> but I know it's not a Nissan Frontier. It's an Opal Frontera but it was what I could find, and I really, really, really want a sticker to put on my HJ61 Land Cruiser. And I'm in the works of chopping to a pickup or ute, like the Aussies would call it. Love your show. Keep up the good work. And yeah, buddy, Emmy style. Yeah, buddy. Best regards, Matthew Scove. Yes, Scove translates to Forrest. And no, I'm not related to Forrest Gump, I think. Okay, all right. I uh, got this one from uh, King Gladney, who has been uh, catching up with the show over uh, the last, uh, I don't know, a uh, few months, and he sends us updates. So he says he has a segment idea. He goes, what's up, Holy Light? Combine both names, he says. Uh, just listen to the whiskey episode with Mike Rice. Oh, that's when you had COVID, and we sat Mike Rice in here and drank mm, on yep. the show instead of doing... I don't know, stuff with you. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think yeah. we kicked you off that show, right? Uh, I don't have uh, good memories of that. Uh, no, that's great. Yeah. Anyway, he says, uh, gave me an idea for a show segment. I recently tried Whistlepig Whiskey because of Holman's recommendation and really enjoyed it. So much, in fact, I bought a $1,000 bottle of Boss Hog 10. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> that's A $1,000 bottle of oh, what, yeah. Boss Hog? Boss Hog 10. Oh, my God. Yeah. My idea for the segment would be Whiskey of the Month. First week, you try the whiskey, bourbon, scotch, and give impressions. Second week, give recommendations as to mixers as uh, in... What makes a great old-fashioned or mixes well with Dr. Pepper? Week three could be food pairings like steak or shrimp or it's, no pairing at all. We're supposed to be talking about trucks. We barely <laughs> talk about trucks anymore. It's a problem. If you because come to the show, you'll be like, what are these These guys talking about food and bourbon? <laughs> no pairing and, at all because it's ridiculous. This, Mini this Coopers and burned all the cyber trucks. And, buzz off and you can't uh, taste anything. And finally, the fourth week could be a redo of week one just to see if your opinion on the whiskey has changed. I know it has nothing to do with trucks. Lightning. But much like that pickup truck, this show carries a little bit of everything. Segment two would be a listener's ride of the month. 
post pics of your ride to your website and have a short interview on the air to tell the story of the truck. And finally, my last idea would be an episode about fuel additives. You all have made mentions about a couple, but never really dive deep into them. I would be curious to know if Octane Booster is effective or if the fuel system cleaner actually does what it's supposed to. I'd be interested in the results for both gas and diesel. Anyhow, enough of me playing executive producer. Y'all keep the stars high and the suckage low. And remember, everything matters. Thanks for watching. And remember, everything matters. All right, that was from our friend King. And uh, King, to answer your questions, uh, I don't think we'll be doing the uh, the whiskey segment because uh, Lightning uh, doesn't like drinking anything high octane like that. Uh, the listener right of the month, uh, something we've talked about, maybe not in that exact format, but we're working on some stuff. And then finally, uh, I have a meeting uh, next month with a famous company that makes Octane Booster. And I'm hoping that I can convince them to come on the show and talk about that. That would be great. Because there's a actually, lot of people ask, does it actually Does work? it work? And also, does it ruin my cats? And what does it do to my fuel system? And all those types of things. So I am going to be working to get them on the show. Uh, and then I had this one other email that I thought was super timely that uh, I want to get into. Because this, this is a cyber truck from last week's uh, episode. Now, why do you get to read several emails back to back? Because I gave you one and then I gave myself one too many. Because I was going to start and then end it, and then you went first or something. I don't know. Right, by the way, uh, truckshowpodcast at gmail.com is the general email inbox, or Holman at truckshowpodcast.com, or lightning at truckshowpodcast.com. All right, this says uh, Cybertruck is from Sammy Max. It says, hey, fellas, I'm sure there's a wide array of opinions held in the Truck Show Podcast community concerning the Cybertruck. But regardless of where each of us stand individually, I'd like to think we can all agree on the following two points. One, we can all have a little fun dunking on Matt Farah of the Smoking Tire, who now famously pontificated on the Joe Rogan podcast that the Cybertruck would never and could never be made. And he is a foolish lad, that one. He also uh, got into a little trouble this week when he mm-hmm. dunked himself onto uh, Jason Camisa and then had to uh, do a retraction and uh, apology on his uh, social feed. And man, the comments in that, oh, scathing. scathing. Yeah, I, we can't even repeat them on the air. There was some freaking gold in there, though. And there's and if you read the comments and you followed the story, uh, the hate that he espouses comes from a particular place that makes him sound really douchey and super, super biased. And you almost can't take him seriously. But he apologized, so it must be okay. Uh, anyway, and number two, we can all appreciate that finally for once, the North American truck market has an innovative and captivating vehicle that the rest of the world will not get. USA, USA, USA. Bonus for Holman. I was watching an interview with the Tesla engineers, and to my delight, they showed that the Cybertruck has adaptive compression and rebound damping alongside the air suspension architecture. I picked up on this fact because Sean had drawn the comparison between the TRX and the Raptor suspensions, which Ford then addressed with the Raptor R. I look forward to learning more about how the Cybertruck actually performs off-road given the setup. Bonus for Lightning. I'm hopeful that if you ever take delivery of your Cybertruck or even just ride in one, you can provide a review of the sound system. Apparently, it's a 15-speaker setup, including the dual subwoofers and integrated microphones around the cabin used for active noise cancellation. This speaker configuration, along with the laminated glass throughout, leads me to expect that the soundstage will be quite compelling. I haven't seen anyone speak to the sound system just yet, and I'm sure Lightning can provide an interesting take. Thanks. You guys are the best. Keep up the good work. I'm excited for the additional weekly podcast, and that's from our friend Sammy. Thank you very much. Awesome. I will definitely try to bring you a a review of the sound system in the Cybertruck. That would be my pleasure. Truckshowpodcast at gmail.com. Send us a note. The Truck Show. The Truck Show. The Truck Show.
All right, if you want to follow us on social, at Truck Show Podcast, at LBC Lighting, at Sean P. Holman. If you want to give us a call, leave us a voicemail on the five-star hotline. That would be 657-205-6105. You almost Damn it. forgot. Did I mess it up? No, no, no. That was it? No, you got it right. You got oh, it. man. 657-205-6105. I thought the two zeros were out of order, and I messed myself up. 657-205-6105, five-star hotline. And we always say this. If you go to the Instagram, at Truck Show Podcast. Push the button. You just push the call smash button. Smash it. Exactly. Smash No, it'll say smash the call button. <laughs> That's a, that's a why right. that's a YouTuber thing. Smash the like, smash button. the like button. Yeah, no. Well, smash the five stars for us and uh, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Continue to download. Tell your friends. Share your favorite episode on your social page and tag us. Yep. And uh, we'd love to hear feedback from you guys. So please hit us up. And uh, you know we're always paying attention. And Dave's been killing it on social lately. It, it, it's it's been really good because uh, I'm actually enjoying the content he's been putting up as a fan. I'm a fan of the Truck Show podcast feeds. Like, he's been right on it. Like, with news, I've been sending him links. He's been putting it with, like, within like two, three minutes. I'll send him a link. Yeah. It's, it's up. He's got commentary going. Guys so, are debating back and forth. Shout out to Dave. Absolutely. So, whether you like Facebook, Truck Show Podcast. Whether you like Instagram, Truck Show Podcast. X, we're not there, so aboard. That's not true. Um, Truck Podcast. I know. We're there. Whatever. But, like, Facebook and Instagram, that's where it's at. So, all right. As we uh, head into the holidays, uh, we will be uh, keeping up our normal cadence of Truck Show podcasts. We might take a week off in between. We're debating right now. Yeah. So you you might get us next week, or you might, or is that two weeks? From two now? weeks from now. Two weeks. You may yeah. or may not. We're not. We're not sure yet. Yeah. By the way, I got. I, I I need to talk about diode dynamics. I won't do it here. I put in my uh, backup light in my in my hitch, uh-huh. which I love. But I'll, we'll talk about that later. And I uh, remember, uh, man, like. A dozen episodes ago, I teased you with like, hey, I'm going to make some uh, catalytic converter shields to protect my cat. Well, I did, and I put them on, and they're cool. (laughs) Okay. And I just said that because it took me forever to get it done, and Uh I got some quotes to have made, and I think I'm going to like put them online and see if anyone anyone wants them. I don't know if you guys – I know we have a couple listeners with TRXs. I'm going to see if the frame is the same underneath, and the maybe guys with Ram 1500s might want them as well, keep their cats protected. I don't know. Is there any interest? Cat protection? Lightning for, at TruckShowPodcast.com. I don't know. Com. Maybe, maybe not. If not, I won't bother. All right. Uh, we have to thank our presenting sponsor, Nissan. Thank you for uh, supporting these two knuckleheads who like to uh, sit in a, uh, a poorly climate-controlled shed in the backyard of a residential house in Huntington Beach, California. Well, you know, we, we haven't done like the, the ID where it's like, the Truck Show Podcast from Huntington Beach, California. You know how they used to be, like, uh, if K-Rock did Pasadena, and mm-hmm. they weren't really in Pasadena, and all that funniness? Well, it was because you had a city of license, and yeah, yeah, yeah so it was Pasadena, Los Angeles. Blah, blah. So K- anyway- I um, still know it. It's K-Rock QFM, Pasadena, Los Angeles, the world-famous K-Rock. There you go. All right, uh, we're the world-famous truck show podcast, and uh, if you're in the market for a truck, head on over to your local Nissan dealer, or hit up NissanUSA.com, where you can build and price a Nissan Frontier, a Titan, or a Titan XD Plenty of options and features. Great trucks. You should own one. And when you want to know more about your engine and drivetrain, look no further than the Banks iDash. The Banks iDash is a compact 52-millimeter gauge that can go on a suction cup mount, in your dashboard, wherever it's convenient, or my favorite place in an iDash stealth pod like Holman's uh, Jeep, or if you've got a uh, late model Ram, late model Ford, late model GM truck, we got stealth pods for all of them. It looks factory integrated, but it's really all about the data. It tells you all the stuff that your dashboard doesn't. It's all available right in your face on the Banks iDash. Go to bankspower.com to find yours. And I want to take uh, one more opportunity to thank Grant. Super cool of you to uh, give us 
the handwritten letter along with the matchbox and Hot Wheels cars. They're just that's a, that's a nice touch. So thank you very much for listening and for sending us the uh, Christmas gifts. And also Ozzy, uh, thank you for my Monster Energy shirt and, and my Doctor Pepper jacket. Doctor Pepper jacket. So Dude, super that's cool. Awesome. Uh, you guys are too good to us. Thank you very much. And uh, we we're uh, not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're stuck. We're stuck. The Truck Show Podcast is a production of Truck Famous LLC. This podcast was created by Sean Holman and Jay Tillis with production elements by DJ Omar Khan. If you like what you've heard, please open your Apple Podcast or Spotify app and give us a five-star rating. And if you're a fan, there's no better way to show your support than by patronizing our sponsors. Some vehicles may have been harmed during the making of this podcast. Christmas biscuits, biscuits on my plate. Dude, that was painful.